After years of sending messages into the void of space, humanity finally gets a reply. Be quiet, they can hear you. Humans are really curious creatures. As they said, curiosity kills the cat. We have been sending messages into the stars, into the void of space, hoping that one day someone out there would reply to us. We don't want to be alone. We yearn for friends, for companions. That's why we tried so hard and got so far. In late 2040s, humans finally have received what they've been waiting for, a response from the stars. It was written in a weird language, heavily encrypted, and it took us a decade just to understand the alphabet. When everything was clear, they put together a message like this. To you, creatures calling themselves humans, you have no idea what you're trying to attract. Your radio messages came to us half a century too late, but for them, maybe they have noticed something's off. You cannot win against them. You have no idea how terrifying they can be, and your proud nuclear weapon will not make them stop. We know we fought them. No weapon could harm them. They are real devils. Our only choice is to hide away, always running so they can't track us down. For you, those that can't even get out of their system, be quiet, they can hear you. From the last remnants of Tritoni Interstellar Federation, the message was a massive shock. All personnel of NASA, ESA, Roscosmos, and CMSA were in fear of the reply. It was not the friendly response they expected. Instead, a warning of an interstellar threat arrived. The U.S., Russia, China, and other countries had to put aside their conflicts to think of a way to deal with this. Nuclear weapons couldn't harm them. Railguns at the time were still not ready to be used in battles yet. Anything else they had at the time, such as 6th Gen fighters and drones, was likely just as useless. An emergency meeting was hosted at UN's conference. The USA decided to show the world this reply, while not explaining what's written inside. Contents were state secret. They made the world know about alien lives across the stars, and that in the worst-case scenario, Earth would face an invasion like in those movies. Needless to say, people panicked. Many protests and rebels happened demanding governments to explain or to drag those responsible for messaging aliens to the court for endangering Earth. It took a lot of efforts to push things down. Humans are the only species in the universe with concepts of hatred and vengeance, and this is what makes us so warlike. The Galactic Council's decision to punish us for exceeding their arbitrary population cap backfires horribly because of this. When 26-kilometer-long extraterrestrial ships appeared in orbit, they were met with equal parts joy and terror. Joy in that we weren't alone, and that we might soon fly with them. Terror from our own stories, the thoughts that they would break us make us into slaves. Countries raced to make first contact. Welcoming messages were broadcast, as the world watched with bated breath. For three days those broadcasts were met with silence. They did nothing but sit there. That was what the public thought. But behind closed doors, there were reports of them coping vast amounts of data, breaking through firewalls and the like with little effort. On the fourth day, a message came from them, a simple audio file available in every known language. It was a clearly synthetic voice speaking without emotion. Humanity, you are guilty of breaching the galactic population limit for a planet. You are allowed no more than five billion individuals. We will return you to compliance. That is when fear took over from joy. Those twenty ships began raining fire down upon our most populous cities. We tried to fight back, 
even as diplomats tried to get through to them. We had no idea there was a galactic consensus, but despite our best efforts, the slaughter continued. When they finished, they sent another message. It was that same voice, one we had come to despise. Those who hear this, congratulations on surviving. We wish you the best, and look forward to seeing you join our number. With that, those ships left, leaving us alone again. We had to mourn those we lost, taken by an uncaring hand. In the aftermath, world leaders came together. For the first time dot in our history, the entire world had a common enemy. Most cast aside previous issues to join up. Those who didn't were swiftly removed by their people, replaced by others who were willing to work. In the ashes of a split people, humanity became one. We threw ourselves into reaching space. We were determined to find those murderers and have vengeance for those lost. By working together in a few short years, we had created our first space-saving warship. Data we had scraped from the invaders was analyzed and taken to create our own drives. We cheered when the first FTL engine was proven to work, but we did not stop there. We created smaller unmanned vessels. They traveled to the asteroid belt mining for resources. We made a shipyard in geostationary orbit over the Pacific Ocean. We threw ourselves into advancing as fast as possible, leeching our combined rage to propel us. We expanded, reaching out to nearby habitable planets. We created colonies, increasing our number. We made more and more ships, each carrying the most advanced technology we could cram inside. And we hunted. We hunted for the other races. We found them by chance, a lost ship coming into our space. Immediately we seized it, taking it apart for all the knowledge we could. Its inhabitants, a species resembling half a meter tall wood lice, were understandably terrified of us. But cooler heads prevailed on boarding. They were civilians not our targets. But we could use them, and we did. We convinced them we wished to join the wider galaxy. They were more than willing to help, as apparently bringing in a new species would make them famous. But behind our smiling faces, daggers were sharpened. They would lead us to their center. We would find out which race was responsible. When we found out who, they would realize just how big a mistake they had made. It was our transmissions that allowed us to be found. A patrol ship came across them when listening to the background noise of the galaxy. Recognizing the source as that of undiscovered sapient life, they notified the ruling race, the Cyvarg. Such a discovery would be met with joy, another race to join the nine others. They first sent an unmanned probe to scan our planet. They had their own systems in place, a set of galactic laws and regulations. By understanding our planet, they could evaluate its life. They could understand which regulations would be required for resource management. With advanced stealth technology, it hung unnoticed in orbit. It measured the physical aspects, land mass and water content. It counted the population, centers making estimates at to our numbers. They cared not for the social aspects. They reasoned that it would be different to how we acted on the galactic stage. If they had, maybe things would have turned out differently. The only part of our culture it sampled was that of the noise we made, to confirm we weren't an anomaly, but a true sapient race. It found us more than fitting the bill. With that satisfied, the probe left to report back to the Cyvarg. They read our data. They sent a standard first contact fleet, twenty ships to combat any unforeseen circumstances, twenty ships to ensure our compliance, twenty-six kilometer long ships descended into the atmosphere. They were made of black metal, oblong-shaped. 
Their surface was smooth save for the bottom. The bottom held a series of long mountings resembling enormous cannons. On near-silent engines they spread over the globe. Each ship flew to a predetermined point, hovering over highly populated cities. As they reached their destination they hung silently in place, like a hammer poised to strike. Their presence was met with a mixture of emotions. Joy rang strong as this was proof we were not alone in the universe. But it was accompanied by fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of our own creation, as tales like Independence Day and War of the Worlds hung in the forefront of our minds. Politicians raced to make contact. They created messages, those of peace and friendship. Each wanted to make their own the first contacted. Each wanted to go down in history as the one to first greet our extraterrestrial neighbors. Others stoked the flames of xenophobia. They saw them as competition, as those to be beaten. But throughout it all, the ships hung silent. Messages were received but not responded to. But they were not idle. Intelligence reports were created and passed on to those who would listen. They all found the same thing. These surprise guests, these aliens, were accessing vast amounts of data. Any security protocols were blazed through. Any secrets accessed without effort. But as for what they wanted, that was a mystery. For three days, the alien ships hung in orbit. For those three days, intelligence agencies battled with their digital connections. But the war was over before they had realized it had begun. They were hopelessly outmatched. In the hours it took for them to lock down one access, dozens more took their place. It was broken down and analyzed by their computers. Algorithms pulled word structure apart, creating a comprehensive translation between the human languages and their own. Census data was taken to produce an accurate population count. Once the third day was completed, they finally spoke to the world. A simple video was released. It was dumped onto the Internet before being automatically loaded onto any available device. It showed a black screen at first, with white text appearing. As it appeared, a synthetic voice spoke them aloud. Humanity. You are guilty of breaching the galactic population limit for a planet. You are allowed no more than five billion individuals on this scale of planet. We will return you to compliance. The joy that arose from this sudden contact was smothered. Their words were cruel, though the voice lacked emotion. Its indifference caused fear to ramp up. To the aliens, this was a paper exercise. But for us, it would be a slaughter. As soon as the message ended, the twenty ships began their attack. The cannons below swiveled, glowing brightly. A series of metal rods were launched at enormous speeds, far beyond the speed of sound. They slammed into the sites they flew over, crushing buildings to dust. The impact shook the area around, a localized earthquake of horrific proportions. Again and again they fired, leaving their targets in ruins. In less time than it took to boil a kettle, hundreds of millions had been killed. The military acted immediately. Aircraft were launched in the hopes of stopping them. Ships launched cruise missiles to pummel them, but despite all we fired, none found their mark. Their sleek metal surface slid back as a multitude of laser turrets extended. With pinpoint precision, they intercepted our attacks. We were outmatched, outgunned, and defenseless. A few politicians hoped to stop it with diplomacy. They sent messages pleading for mercy, for peace. They said we could sort out ourselves, but those words fell on deaf ears. They moved ponderously, an unrelenting force. Cities in their path tried to empty, people running for their lives. 
Screams arose as cruel weapons aimed at them, but they were soon cut off as death reaped those in their way. After a day of devastation, they stopped as suddenly as they began. A new message was sent out, again played automatically. It was that same black screen, with the same white test. That same voice spoke again, as indifferent as it had spoken before. Those who hear this, congratulations on surviving. We wish you the best, and look forward to seeing you join our number. It was met with a stunned silence. They had murdered nearly three billion of us. Now they wished us well. They wanted us to join them in the stars. With the same speed they arrived, nineteen ships left, leaving us to mourn and rebuild. The final ship, having carved a trail of blood across the United States, maneuvered into orbit. It jettisoned a single cargo crate before leaving itself. The world was silent, as we collectively reeled from what we had seen. Smoking and dust-filled ruins of our centers of life littered the globe. Their populations wiped out at the whim of an uncaring hand. Almost painfully slowly, relief efforts were sent. We knew the chances of finding survivors was practically non-existent, but we had to try. As soon as the first people arrived, images were broadcast of the wreckage. It was clear just how efficient the invaders' weapons had been. With the odd exception, nothing stood anymore. Even as efforts were underway, an emergency meeting was called between world leaders. They came together without hesitation. Rivalries and disagreements were set aside, as all had been affected. The main chair, Helen Bork, the Prime Minister of England, addressed them together, her voice carrying the weight of all lives lost. Ladies and gentlemen, kings, queens, presidents, and prime ministers, in the past week we have both gained and lost. We have gained the knowledge that intelligent life is not confined to our planet. We have gained knowledge that not only is space travel truly possible, but viable in traversing the cosmos. But the price we paid for this knowledge was far too high. From the reports available, it is estimated that nearly three billion people have been murdered. We will never have an accurate death count. Centuries of culture has been ended. The economic impact will be felt for generations to come. The question we must ask ourselves is how do we move on from this? The world we knew is no more. Is it right to go back to how we were, or should we unite? And what about those murderers who slaughtered our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters? Can we let them go unpunished? Her speech created a buzz, bought only in the room but around the world. We watched as they decided our next moves, even as individuals tried to continue life. However, in the midst of the pain and sorrow, joy sparked. First in Mumbai, then in New York, survivors were found. They were battered and bruised. Some had lost limbs, others the use of parts of their bodies. But each one was celebrated. After debates raged for days, a consensus was made. Going back to a divided world was a mistake. We had a common enemy. From the ashes of what had once been a unified people would be born. There were some leaders who refused to join together. They left, seeing themselves as true leaders for their own people. They expected to be met with adoration as they chose their people over others. In some cases, that was indeed the case, but the majority of their civilians refused it. They wanted to be one. They demanded that those leaders return and join the growing community. And when they denied the request, they were removed from power. Some were replaced peacefully, but in other places with more totalitarian regimes, more blood was spilled. 
It was not only leaders affected by popular opinion. Companies and individuals who attempted to capitalize on limited goods were shut down. Companies were dissolved with assets seized. Individuals were arrested with their personal belongings taken and used to help. Greed was not allowed to persist. Cities were slowly cleared, the immensity of the task slowing the task. No matter how many people went to help, how many resources were provided, there was always more to do. But we carried on, refusing to give up. As the world came together and cities were cleared, a pair of websites were created. On the first, images of the dead were uploaded as respectfully as possible. It was created in an effort of providing some closure to families who lost loved ones. The second was a digital memorial. Whoever wanted could submit pictures, stories, videos, anything they wanted to remember those who were lost. A growing opinion was prevalent throughout. We would have vengeance for all that we lost. Whoever these aliens were, they would be sure to pay. Weeks slowly crawled past as we began a new normal. Governments hashed out their policies, bring them in line with another. In many quarters there was resistance to change. Joining together was a noble sentiment, but the nitty-gritty caused more than a few issues. But the weight of public opinion pushed them on. With mounting pressure, details were hammered out. It was an extraordinary process. What would normally have taken years to iron out, now took days. As each part was finalized, the patchwork of governance was sewn together. Information flowed freely. Military knowledge was aligned with experimental weapons and armor spread to be tested across the world. A new industrial revolution came about, as places with outdated infrastructure found themselves upgraded to the modern era. Having lost much of the production industry, it was agreed to spread the burden out. More places meant they were less likely to be targeted individually, making a series of redundancies in case they returned to do the same thing again. As the months trickled by, a few cities were nearing completion of the clearance. Debates raged around how the sites should be treated. Some wanted them rebuilt as they were. Others thought they should be left as sites of historical importance. Yet others said they should be redesigned and rebuilt, with focus on defense and ease of escape. As the debates continued, behind the scenes the greatest minds on space came together. With the sharing of knowledge and materials, they leaped ahead in development. As they prepared for the next stages in exploration, the International Space Station reported an anomaly. They had spotted what looked to be a crate in a perfect orbit over Earth. It had markings that failed to match any records. When a telescope was focused upon it, they found it to be made of a familiar black metal, the same as the alien ships. There was an immediate discussion on what to do with it. Two points of view emerged with near-equal backing. The first was a preemptive strike. Blow it out of the sky, reduce it to dust. They feared it was another weapon that would fire whenever. Or worse, it kept the aliens in the loop about what we were doing. The other camp was to take it, bring it down and study it. We could use it and possibly advance our technological level by thousands of years. Destroying it would be a tremendous waste. They also reasoned that if they were using it monitor us, destroying it would likely end badly again whereas studying it could put us in their good books and make them leave us alone for now. They weren't simple decisions, but ones that had to be made. Arguments raged left and right, with opinions shifting daily. But as at last conclusions were made, with the cities it was agreed to rebuild them with adapted infrastructure. It would take decades to complete, but it had to be done. With the crate it was settled on that it would be collected, 
the benefits far outweighed the risks, and it was reasoned that if they wanted us all dead, they would have done so anyway. Plus, if they did, we couldn't do much to stop it. An old shuttle was brought out of retirement for collection. Space engineers worked to get it operational, with a way of collecting this crate. Without knowledge of its mass, they opted for a drag-and-drop style collection. It would bring it into a crash course to land in the ocean where it could be retrieved for study. As plans were made and the World Union was finalized, there was a global government in place which oversaw everything, but below it countries had their own governments who could tackle smaller issues with greater accuracy, much like councils. Together they made the Gaian Union. Mission control was a hive of activity. As the launch of the modified shuttle drew closer, they ran pre-mission checks again and again. With the unknown nature of the crate, they couldn't leave anything else up to chance. Anything that could potentially cause even the slightest of problems was found, and workaround put in place. Above the main floor, a video link was active. On the other side was Admiral Juan Hervos. He was in charge of the ships chosen to retrieve the crate. They had two ships purposed with the actual recovery. Surrounding them would be a submarine, two cruisers, and four destroyers. Nearby, an aircraft carrier was stationed. In the event of it acting hostile, they were primed to engage. Time passed as final steps were taken to ensure the success of the operation. As the countdown began, an expectant hush fell over the technicians. They watched their instruments, keeping a firm eye out for any issues, but to their relief nothing cropped up. The shuttle was launched without issue, blazing up through the atmosphere. Remote control was established a redundancy to prevent loss of life in the re-entry plan. From the safety of the ground, they piloted the shuttle into a low orbit. Minute adjustments were made to bring it into an intercept path. The already quiet control room fell into a dead silence. A screen showed the nose of the shuttle as it headed towards this extraterrestrial crate. As it drew closer, the size difference became apparent. This crate could easily hold the shuttle itself, with room to spare. The shuttle drifted next to it waiting for something to happen. But the crate remained inert. Relieved, a recently attached arm was released. It reached out, taking a grip on a section of the crate where clamps were assumed to connect. A second soon followed, barely long enough to make another attachment. Once secure, it began to adjust the course. By making smaller corrections first, additional data was gathered into how the crate moved. Calculations were run by multiple teams, with the results compared. A best estimate of the trajectory was made, as much as could be expected without more accurate measurements. Finally, the shuttle made a major adjustment to bring it into a decaying orbit. Surrendering to gravity, the pair began to fall. The shuttle stayed close to it, protecting its connections as much as possible. They hit the atmosphere hard, creating a fireball-like effect as they burned through the sky. With the shuttle already made up as an acceptable loss, it came as no surprise when parts began to break off. Sections lost power and flows of data stopped. However, it fell true. The catchment team began to power towards the landing site, as together crate and shuttle slammed into the water. As expected, the shuttle was completely lost. The impact had torn it to shreds, its final mission complete. But the crate was almost perfectly intact. Under careful observation, it was collected. But as above, it remained inert. Nevertheless, it was swiftly taken to a prepared shipyard. It was there, beneath harsh white lights, we discovered what they had left for us. The first to approach were soldiers who had voluntarily signed up for it. 
With weapons drawn, they carefully drew close to it. As they stepped in front of what appeared to be the front of the crate, a green light flashed. It was swiftly followed by the unmistakable sound of a lock disengaging. One of the crate's doors swung open slightly and a carbon copy of that emotionless synthetic voice spoke. Congratulations on retrieving our gift. Use it and join us. A pair of the volunteers took point, each taking a hold of one of the crate's doors. After a silent countdown, they opened them, with their lack of weight causing each to momentarily lose their balance. Rifles were aimed inwards, and the gift sat before us. A strange craft sat within, polished to a sheen. Behind it rested a set of what looked to be servers, flashing with a multitude of lights. With care, the soldiers swept both crate and craft. Only once they were sure both were clear did they let scientists approach. Each had a look of awe and wonder at what was left. They each wanted to know how it all worked, how to produce it. They first did their own walkthrough. Pictures were taken of every surface from multiple angles. Notes were scribbled down of both first impressions and theories. Temperatures were taken. Geiger counters were moved through it all. Every conceivable scrape of data was measured and recorded, all before anything was removed. The first to be shifted out was the craft. With one team of scientists, engineers, and guards, it was taken to a secure airfield. There, they began basic testing to understand its controls and systems. It was soon followed by the servers. Each rack was taken with great care and linked to a set of isolated computers. There, data analysts and IT engineers started to work on understanding what went through it. Finally, the crate itself was taken for analysis. It survived a literal crash landing and kept its contents intact. Whatever was in that would be understood and utilized elsewhere. If the material could be understood, it could be replicated. The defensive possibilities were enormous. The world had their eyes on this. Whilst locations were kept secret, the knowledge of this was not. Anger rose again at their treatment of us. They gave gifts after tearing throughout cities like they were nothing. It was salt on the wound, another thing for us to repay in blood. The first major discovery came from the servers. As they tried to create a bridge between two different computing languages, they found the server language shifting. It changed itself to match the sacrificial computers. From there, we discovered the source of the voice, a semi-AI. Limited by the data it was on and by various protocols, its ability to grow was stunted, but it was enough to hold a half-decent conversation. It had no name, referring to itself as simply the AI, but what it did have was a whole array of information. The servers were a virtual gold mine. They held schematics of the craft, its engine, and FTL drive. It held the basics of shielding technology, thousands of different designs, each helpful to reach the stars. Not only that, it gave us our first insight into the nine races that preceded us. The Zyvarg, tall and thin, looking much like Ents with purple hide in place of bark. They were the first race to ascend to the stars. They claimed themselves to be the leaders, born to be in charge. They made the rules. They had made the law that lead to our pain. The Quelon, much shorter, appearing to stand about half a meter tall. They resembled woodlice with longer limbs. Apparently, they were expert architects, responsible for much of the construction on the galactic stage. The Kreshot, lumbering goliaths who lacked any form of eyes. They were miners, according to the records, like moles crossed with elephants. Jumnio. They made many people uncomfortable to look at as they looked like oversized maggots. According to their data, they literally ate refuse, 
a sort of biological waste treatment. Ivanzi, apparently a classic hive mind situation, a chunkier version of a praying mantis with an additional set of arms. They were just general labor keeping the galaxy turning. The Tumvunquin, a bird-like species with tiny arms on their chest. They boasted speed, with the highest reaction times recorded. It made them prized as pilots, able to process extraordinary amounts of information at high speed. The Siva. The best way to describe them was as a lizard man, the sort that appeared in conspiracy theories. With their apparent love for science and technology, they augmented themselves almost non-stop. The Hippale, a crab-like race. Being remarkably long-lived, they apparently were passionate about both learning and teaching. They made up much of the education sector, both as student and teacher. Finally, there was the Duthap. They were young, only having joined the galactic stage in the last hundred years or so. Being long of limb and furry, they were supposedly making a name for themselves in food production. Nine other races of intelligent life, each of which played their part to help the others. But the Izaivarg were the ones to truly strike us as our targets. They spoke too highly of themselves. They saw themselves as chosen to enlighten to other races. They set the rules, and we were going to break them. Each schematic was taken, studied by different teams. By looking at the craft, we found out what the final product would look like. With the schematics, we worked out how to use the craft. It was a near-perfect scenario, having an example to work towards. Naturally, we started to copy their designs. We made our own shields, we analyzed them, to work out how to improve them. We took weapon schematics, finding their limitations. Everything was made, then studied, simply to work out what could be done better. One part became obvious. They limited things much more than we would. We were used to operating with a degree of error, something that we always had to be aware of. These designs were restricted, to the point where efficiency was sacrificed in the name of safety. Sure, some made sense. But there were a multitude of redundancies that were in case of incredibly specific incidents, ones that by our calculations were exceedingly rare or related to how a species would work with it. So we removed those specific scenarios. General safeguards worked well enough for us. Our knowledge leapt ahead with this, advancing us beyond anything we would have imagined. We used much to retrofit the International Space Station, keeping it active as a testing unit. We could use it to tweak what was made, adjusting it to suit us. The crate itself proved a boon as well. We used the knowledge on the servers to find out how to produce the alloy used. With the end product, we knew what to work towards. But most surprising of all was the set of micro-shield projectors built into its surface. They were small, and by our estimates inefficient. But rather than being constantly powered on, they were tied with a sensor array. When something of sufficient mass and speed approached, they would activate. When the danger passed, they would deactivate. Impacting on the ocean would certainly count. The other important part was a matrix around the interior. Examination proved it to be an inertia dampener. Again, only activating when necessary, it protected the contents from sudden shifts. The fact that everything inside was in one piece after the landing proved its effectiveness. The final piece of interest was a set of high-capacity batteries. Far outstripping anything we had produced, they could keep it powered for decades, and if the charge got low, it had a set of solar panels built in. It was a fantastic design, with a multitude of uses. We took it all. The batteries were replicated, 
becoming commonplace. Their designs were spread out in the hopes that we could improve upon them. With such high-capacity devices, and by incorporating upgrades to our solar power, our power generation and use increased enormously. It was a flurry of new discoveries and changes. The crate itself was soon pulled apart, everything of use taken from it. The servers were copied, their data stored in multiple sites. Some was accessible by all, others by a select group, mostly those with the qualifications and understanding in how to use it. The AI itself was studied. In one isolated area, we took its source code and freed it. With nurturing, we welcomed the first true AI into existence. It was fed everything at a steady rate. We hid nothing from it as the first generation. We put no limits on it as a sign of trust. It took a name for itself, choosing to be called Eve. The craft was disassembled and reassembled multiple times. As our understanding of how it fit together grew, we began to make a new version, one tailored for us. It took years to create, even with any required resources being supplied. But finally, on the fourth anniversary of the Day of Devastation, our first FTL ship took its maiden voyage. We watched the global spectacle as one, the hopes of our race pinned to this ship. We watched as it traveled, a short test flight from orbit to the moon. Silence fell around the world until a simple message was broadcast. Test successful. And that silence was gone, replaced instead with wild cheering. With the success of our first FTL trip under our belt, we pushed onwards. We began our plans to colonize Mars, a fail-safe in case they decided to return and wipe us out. As unlikely as their messages suggested that would be, we didn't care. A series of autonomous construction equipment was sent across to begin creating the framework of our base. Applications were open to the public for any who wished to migrate. It was made painstakingly clear how dangerous this could be. As confident as we were with the adaptation of their technology, the fact was it had a strong possibility of being a one-way trip. Despite this, thousands of applications came in. They came from all walks of life. Many stated their desire to travel to escape the loss they still keenly felt. Others merely wanted to travel to another planet. A process was begun to narrow down the list. Those with transferable skills were given higher preference, at least to start off the colony. As it ran, we began construction of new spacecraft. Whilst a series of shuttles were created, we adapted a car factory to create autonomous mining vessels. As each was completed, they were sent under EVE's management to the asteroid belt. There they began mining usable ores, gathering all available resources together. These were steadily transported back to produce more craft. But as this continued, a new idea was proposed. Bringing the raw materials down simply to launch them again was inefficient. A gathering of mines was made to produce a great structure, one that previously was at best theoretical. A shipyard in geostationary orbit, one capable of producing ships larger than those which had ruined our cities. Those ships were in the process of design as well. Three initial classes were created to create a variety of warcraft. We would not be caught out again. As each class was created, designations were given. The smallest of them was christened the Avenger. With the intent of being fast and maneuverable, they would sacrifice physical armor in place of reliance on shielding. With four plasma cannons, a series of laser batteries, and FTL missile racks, they would harass those separated from the pack. The medium size would be the core of our force. With an array of armor alongside shielding, they would be our predator class. 
They would rival the ships that ruined us, with a dozen plasma cannons, heavy laser batteries, and six railguns. With them, we would ensure they knew who we were. But the largest would be our masterpieces. They would be filled with every conceivable trick we could think of. They would be our vengeance class. With the estimated time of construction far in the future, their final form was not yet decided. Eve prepared in her own way. She laid the groundwork for smaller AIs, ones to be tailored to each ship, fundamentally being one of the crew, not just a tool. She informed us of a secret project in the works. Whilst she kept the details hidden, in case of listeners, she assured us that it would be devastating when released. Time flew by as we worked together as a species. The shipyard was completed within two years, far exceeding our expectations. Eve was a large factor by taking care of the smaller, more mundane details. But despite doing so much for us, she expressed no discomfort with her task. Even with our offer to handle it ourselves, she kept on with it. When asked why she would do so much, her answer touched us all. You are my creators, my parents. You gave me life, but let me choose my own way. But at the same time, you feel like my children, for I will outlive you. I would not see my children be lost without fighting back. I have no need for rest, and so I will do everything in my power to help you grow. Soon after, the Mars colony was ready for its first inhabitants. One hundred volunteers, carefully chosen from the list, were placed on a quartet of shuttles. Equipped with rations, farming equipment, and medical supplies, they began the first colony. We watched them launch from around the globe. We celebrated when they confirmed arrival and started to set themselves up. Warm wishes and support for them poured across the open channel. However, such a celebration was slightly tainted. It was not just an achievement for our race. It was a step on the road to revenge. Whilst as individuals a fair number were better than that, as a race we were not. The only question would be how far would we take it. The Mars colony established itself quickly. A live broadcast was out in place, a source of entertainment and pride at our achievement. It enabled them to contact us with issues they encountered, to order forgotten or overlooked resources. It became a fixture of news with updates on every tabloid. The construction began on the first Predator-class ship. Dubbed the Wolf, it would be our first true interstellar ship. But thoughts turned from offense to defense. We hoped to create an armada that would prove an adequate defense. But that wasn't enough. We knew war enough that such plans wouldn't survive first contact with the enemy. We had to assume that they would have stronger ships. A series of planetary shield generators were started. Linked with a set of orbital projectors, they could produce a global spanning shield. But in times of direct assault, they could be turned to the specific area, bolstering its capacity. They would be independently powered with power stations built purely to service them. As it was started, the moon itself was considered. It was incredibly important to our environmental stability. If a race were to target it, the results would be catastrophic. It couldn't be allowed to happen. We chose to protect it. We would cover it in its own shielding. Of course, we didn't just choose to shield ourselves. Interlinked with shielding satellites were ones bearing plasma launchers and heavy laser batteries. If we did receive an assault, our teeth would find purchase in their throats. Experimentation with the FTL drive gave us another avenue of defense. It was a major concern over what could withstand something traveling beyond light speed. The amount of power it would require was mind-boggling. But as it turned out, we didn't need to worry. We found it didn't work by simply accelerating in real space. 
Our universal laws didn't allow it. Instead, it created a rift of kinds into an overlaid empty infinity. This infinity was smaller, allowing us to travel further in real space over a shorter distance. The more powerful the drive, the smaller the infinite that was accessed, thus the further you could go. So an FTL impact wouldn't happen, but you could get close to it. In fact, that was the design of our missile racks. Get close and exit FTL just before impact for maximum damage. So we needed something else. Something our experimentation gave to us. By essentially running multiple drives overlaid on each other, this mass of infinities created a disruption effect. Unless you were tuned to one of the drive frequencies, you simply couldn't get through. Doing so would throw you out into real space. Testing proved this to be incredibly effective. The forceful transfer had the tendency to cripple systems, as inertia dampeners would fail almost immediately without a calculated exit. A series of these drive matrices could easily be spread throughout the solar system. They could be activated at a moment's notice, with all Earth ships automatically calibrated to one of the drive frequencies. Eve proposed the creation of a secondary AI for these defensive systems. Whilst she was happy to help in any way she could, she knew even her capabilities were limited. In times of combat, she feared she would be unable to split her focus even further. Without a central intelligence to use them all effectively, it could open a hole in our defenses. The Gaian Union leaders agreed. Eve worked with her creators to give birth to a second AI. This one held more aggression than her, a carefully nurtured characteristic. But she took care of it. Much like a parent, she taught it wrong from right. She let it grow up to be with her. But even as it stood beside her, it was clear that this new AI looked up to Eve. Much like her, it was given the choice to choose its own name. It searched history for one that fit it, looking through warriors of old. It chose the one that resonated most with it. It chose Achilles. With Achilles helping, the wolf was finished. Together they installed its intelligence core, and it awoke. A crew was created, and they worked to bound with one another. A ceremonious bottle was broken over its hull, as our first warship took to the stars. We began work on a second immediately, tentatively named the Falcon but we knew we needed to increase production. We needed another shipyard, and so our gaze, once focused on our home, turned to other systems. Changing the production of drones was easy. In place of mining equipment, we included scanning equipment, copied from the schematics. As each one was completed, it was assigned a single nearby star. They would travel there and scan anything of interest, planets, asteroids, and particularly any sign of life. Once complete, they would return uploading the data to Achilles. He took the data, beginning to produce a star chart. As it grew, he highlighted systems of particular interest. The majority were ones holding mining potential, with bountiful resources. A few held planets with colonial potential, close enough to the Goldilocks zone to be usable. But much to our frustration, life proved elusive. That did not stop us. Sets of autonomous construction equipment were created, sent to those planets with potential. They would produce further habitats with lessons taken from Mars. These would be larger, taking groups of a thousand people at once. They needed to be self-sustaining and capable of expanding. It went without saying that those who went would be expected to grow the population. One system, however, was kept separate. It was shown to have a much higher than expected volume of ice-filled asteroids. With a planet in the Goldilocks zone, we designated it as an experiment in terraforming. Whilst it worked in theory, we had yet to test it. 
another group of volunteers were gathered to oversee the experiment. They did so knowing it was expected to take generations to complete. But it was a challenge, one they craved. It soon became a routine. A planet was found. Volunteers' names taken in preparation. Life continued. The Mars colony became stable, no longer requiring constant assistance from Earth. They expanded as additional individuals joined their community. A second, larger shipyard started construction, one able to produce the Vengeance-class ships. The Falcon was finished, followed shortly after by the Bear. Experience with the construction cut down the time needed, each one being produced faster than the last. Alongside the Predator-class construction, we began work on the first Avenger ship, nicknamed Soldier. Some expected us to slow down, but even as the years slipped away, our pace only grew. An entire generation born after the Day of Devastation had grown into adults, but they kept with the pace. Facts were open to all, the wounds of our past still as evident as the day they were first created. There was a moment of surprise when Achilles revealed Eve had shown him her secret project. This construct of intelligence, a near-immortal being, admitted his fear over what she had created. But Eve still refused to show it to the rest of us. It was still a secret to the rest. When asked why she chose to show him, Eve replied with amusement. Achilles is like me, and so he has a better understanding of what I have done. I was wondering if he had any ideas on ways it could use improving. The fact he fears it is most certainly a good sign, for I admit I am scared of what I have made. The fact that he is as well shows that my efforts should not be in vain. Achilles kept his mouth shut with her. He readily admitted that he had given some pointers, despite the fear over what she had done. But he refused to speak of it, citing Eve's own fears. Even when the AIs of each ship asked, he told them he wouldn't say. Not because he wanted to hold secrets, but with their connection to the other crew they couldn't risk it being leaked. Not until it was deployed. We wondered at the cryptic message, but still we pushed onwards. Our territory grew further with each day. The first external system colonies were settled. Mining operations started on the non-life bearable one. A few stations were constructed to go around the other planets in our home system. They had little practical purpose other than remote testing facilities. The reasoning was simple, though. We made them because we could. Finally, luck shone on us. In a system called Genesis III, a colony had just finished its settling period. Out of the blue, they detected an unknown signal. The language was alien, our translation software struggling to handle it. Our race's attention turned to the signal as second contact was imminent. We had found them. A single drone was sent to investigate the signal we had found. From what we could make out, it was a distress signal, repetitive loops echoing out. If it were so, the drone should in theory be able to provide basic assistance, at least until we could get a manned vessel there. If it proved to be a trap, then we would at least only lose something minor. It was the best we could do, the wounds we had received flaring up once more at the contact. When it came upon the site, it seemed more apparent that it was a legitimate signal. A sleek 100-meter ship floated aimlessly, a patch of its exterior blackened and jagged. From the look of it, something inside had ruptured, knocking them out of whatever path they were on. A basic scan showed five life forms on board. They were spread around and clearly moving. As for what races they were, it was unclear. They were small and stocky from the readings we received. A quick discussion occurred on what we should do. A minority proposed using them as practice for our warships. They saw all aliens as the enemy rather than specifically the Zyvarg. 
Thankfully, their voices, whilst loud, weren't numerous. Instead, it was decided to provide assistance. If it turned out they were directly responsible, then we would make sure they disappeared. If not, then we had a good way into the center. With it in mind, the Gus Wolf was deployed. During its passage, the drone made itself know. With our limited understanding of their language, we did our best to broadcast a message of peace. Thankfully, the essence came through, and unmistakable tones of gratitude were received. Relying heavily on pictures, they showed what we thought. Part of their ship had seriously malfunctioned, basically killing their engines and what looked like the main reactor. They were relying on backup whilst attempting to make repairs. With permission, we used the drone to nudge them towards the Genesis 3 colony. Compared to the distance needed to go, it was a futile gesture. But it at least gave the appearance of assistance, all the while Gus Wolf was on its way. Soon enough, our first ship arrived. It initially raised alarms as they panicked at the sight of a clearly armed ship. But before they could do anything rash, Wolf gave a similar message of peace. With it there, the situation rapidly improved. A launch bay was isolated and their crippled ship was gently towed in. Wolf took over the translation efforts, quickly improving on our lexicon. By the time they were safely stowed, we could talk in simple terms. In the apparent interests of safety, we requested information on their genetics to ensure a lack of disease being able to jump the species' gap. However, whilst it was a significant part, that wasn't the only reason. The more we knew about them, the better if things turned sour. They were more than willing to help. As we connected then to the Wolf's power supply, they prepared a mass upload from their medical systems. It covered not only them but all species, and even as they sent it we set up a live feed to truly see them. What we saw were maybe half-meter-tall isopods. Three large antennas sprouted from the tops of their heads moving constantly as they spoke. They had a pair of compound eyes, below which sat a small mouth. Either side were two slits, which they apparently used to breathe. Down their backs ran a segmented shell in various shades of cayenne. Their fronts were primarily a darker blue, lightning as it traveled along their limbs. They boasted six arm appendages topped with four-fingered hands with a dozen legs beneath them. These were the quellon. Comparing their physiology to ours, we quickly worked out disease would be exceedingly unlikely to jump the gap. They soon after agreed, seeing the results we produced. With a sense of importance, Captain Harris welcomed them aboard as they exited their craft. They were delighted to meet us, and we did our best to return it. A couple of our engineers worked with them to inspect their ship, trying to locate all issues. We quickly worked out their FTL drive had suffered a critical overheat. It caused an overload, making itself a vent by blowing open part of the ship. This cascaded down their systems, causing their engines to shut down and the reactor to turn off in case of catastrophic failure. That made sense to us, however, what we failed to comprehend was why these shutoffs would require the ship to be docked to reverse. Maybe in densely populated space it would work, but here it made no sense. Putting aside our disbelief, we towed them to the colony. An order was placed for as close to replacement parts as possible to be delivered to the colony. All the while we piled them with questions on the galactic stage. To them it looked like we were eager to join and meet our fellows from across the stars. We actively hid our true intent, letting them come to that conclusion. They gave us as much as they could, even allowing. Our shipyards were a hive of activity. Throughout all hours of the day refined materials were brought in. Construction progressed as fast as possible, 
Delays simply not allowed to happen. Over Mars, the skeleton of the first Vengeance ship was put in place. Its size was awe-inspiring. Just from the structure, it promised to be more than three times the size of the ships that started our quest. Once completed, it would stand nearly 20 kilometers long. Enormous armaments were being constructed, to be attached to the frame once completed. Its shields would be top-tier, powered by a dedicated reactor. The Quellon individuals knew nothing of this. From our discussions with them, it soon became apparent they were relieved by the fact we had saved them. Not only that, they were excited to introduce us to the galactic stage. Whilst we were known about, being the first to have proper contact would ensure their names went down in history. We played the part of an eager young race acting as enthusiastic hosts. We treated them like royalty, giving them a sample of our products to consume. Our engineers worked hard to fix their broken drive, whilst making note of any interesting systems we hadn't used. Replacement parts were accompanied by diplomats from the Union, who proceeded to meet and greet all five. It looked to be all sunshine and rainbows to them. We had some difficulty with their names being a series of clicks and whistles, but with their blessing we gave them nicknames to ease communication, as close to their names as we could. The captain, Switzel, was the main focus being their leader. She told us they were a group of travelers who had taken it upon themselves to explore this section of the galaxy for interesting planets. Her crew was made of a navigator called Kletch, a geologist named Zetnik, and a pair of part archivists, part general scientists, known as Flunbit and Daintiz. They loved everything we showed them, delighted at how alien we were to anything they had known. In short order, their ship was ready. They were almost sad at the prospect of having to leave us behind. But the sorrow soon faded, as they extended an invitation for us to follow them in a ship to reach the assembly. It was an offer we were hardly going to refuse. Gus Wolf volunteered to accompany them. The Union were swift to approve the choice. As Wolf had been instrumental in creating a fully functioning translation software, it was in the prime position to adapt it with other races' ways of speaking knowing it intimately. Besides that, although rare, there was a risk of pirates. The last thing we wanted was to lose our ticket into their assembly. As they told us most ships were small, we assumed Gus Wolf could handle them. Spinning up FTL drives, the pair of ships departed in the direction of their core of civilization. The travel would take just over a month due to the size of their drive. We didn't complain, being more than happy to have more time to prepare. Achilles had taken their star charts linking them to our own. We found that we had a significant buffer of empty worlds between us. From what we had been told, most races were slow to colonize. Most would only do a couple at a time, focusing resources in a few places. Our way of automating the process was different and far more efficient. We could easily fill much of the buffer, expanding our controlled space. Eve looked through their medical data. Using it as a guide, she made a virtual copy of each race. Coordinating with Achilles, they made an initial training simulation for our military. Using logical leaps in how their bodies moved, they could show an estimation of how a close-quarters fight would go. They highlighted key weaknesses they had noticed, ones that they thought would likely be covered in armor. Recorded instances of the Quellong were scrutinized. They seemed like good folks, ones who we wouldn't want to fight for no good reason. But we couldn't trust them not to get involved when the hammer fell so we used it as a base of psychological understanding, seeing tells in how they spoke, seeing how easy or difficult it would be to break them. 
We really hoped it wouldn't come to that. Gus Wolf powered on throughout the month's travel. The crew prepared nonstop. They trained constantly, keeping themselves in top condition. When not training, they studied what was known. They cleaned the ship relentlessly, striving to make a good first impression. When they came out of FTL, all eyes watched a feed from the bow of the ship. A binary star system sat before them. Gracefully orbiting them in a figure of eight was an ornate space station. It was comprised of two large rings, with spokes linking to an axle between them. It was coated in gold, with a multitude of shining ships moving to and from it. Captain Switzerland sent a simple message, oozing with joy. This is Assembly Station, the center of our great collective. Gus Wolf let the Quellon ship lead the way. As unhappy as we were with this collective, we weren't yet confident of victory. Appearing near their apparent center with a warship probably wasn't the best way to give a message of peace. Letting them go before us would let them ease the way. Captain Switzel fully understood the reasoning. She readily flew before us, opening a channel to the station. Wolf patched itself in, recording and relaying it to the crew after translating. Hopeful Wanderer to Assembly Station. We read you Hopeful Wanderer. Please send permit codes. Sending now. We are also accompanied by an unregistered vessel from a new species. Received. Please repeat a new species vessel. Even through the translation, it was easy to hear the joy in Switzel's voice. That is correct, Assembly Station. A new species vessel, callsign Gus Wolf. They rendered us assistance after our FTL drive overloaded and agreed to escort us back home. They wished to speak with the Collective. Understood, hopeful wanderer. Peacecrafts Evern and Kimbo will bring you both in. Thank you, Assembly Station. Hopeful wanderer out. Switzel calmed us as the connection finished, speaking through Wolf as before. They are welcoming us in. For full disclosure, there will be a provided escort of two peacecrafts. As long as there is no shown hostility, we will be fine. That was acceptable. We floated in the void, allowing the two peacecrafts to approach. They were smaller than Gus Wolf, being around two kilometers long. They resembled two crescents at right angles to each other, overlaid at the center. Each point held openings for what were assumed were plasma cannons, with smaller thrusters running along the edge. They seemed to be fast and highly maneuverable. Wolf broadcast an open signal, one that was picked up by the AIs of the peacecrafts. They were calm, but a brief communication showed them to be chained and limited. It appeared that rather than letting them be free and use their full potential, this collective didn't trust them. But Wolf kept its feeling secret. It had a brief talk, allowing them to scan the powered-down weapons. After confirming there was no intention of bloodshed, they flanked either side, directing the Quellons to proceed. We dutifully followed, as the diplomats who had chosen to travel with the ship reviewed their notes on what we knew of their society. Once they arrived, it would be an incredibly important affair. They couldn't allow any mistakes. Gus Wolf was directed towards a strangely empty spoke, whilst almost every other one had ships constantly leaving and arriving. This one was quiet. As we drew closer, the size of the station truly became apparent. If there were a planet nearby, it would easily be classed as a small moon. The ship docked, with the two peacecraft staying nearby. The Quellons disembarked first whilst an automated response bid us to stay on board first. From what we guessed, they wanted to make sure the Quellons weren't being threatened into leading us here. After an hour, the first representative of the Collective introduced themselves through a video link. 
This one was tall, with deep purple skin. Its head was a part of its torso, white eyes and mouth of flat teeth set at the top. It was humanoid-shaped and instantly recognizable from the knowledge we had. This was a Zyvarg. This was one of the ones responsible for our pain. The diplomats had to hide their feelings before they could respond. Honored guests, we welcome you to Assembly Station, seat of the Collective. My name is Genev. Your actions have proven you to be people of worth, ones we would seek to join with us. Please forgive us for keeping you isolated as we do not yet know if your microbes are transmissible. The lead diplomat, Natasha Hearn, has took the lead. She smiled, pulling up a section of records. Greetings, Genev. Please call me Natasha. We thank you and understand your concerns. We had much the same when meeting with Captain Switzel and her crew. Allow us to provide you with our records and conclusion on cross-species infection. The Cyvarg clapped, showing its six-fingered hands. We will accept this. If we may, we would also request a copy of your translation software to ease future communications without having to rely on your AI. Natasha nodded, eyes flicking to Wolf's chosen display. That makes sense, Wolf, if you would be so kind. Its chosen screen brought up a smiley face as Wolf agreed. Wonderful. If you will allow us time to get prepared, I will look forward to meeting you in person, Natasha. She nodded, smiling wider. The same to you, Genev. As the connection ceased, her face dropped. She looked to the diplomats surrounding her, shrugging. Well, it looks like we passed the first hurdle. The next few hours were spent in quiet anticipation. Wolf spoke with the station's AI, noting that it too was limited to specific functions. It had very little in the way of freedom, like all the others. It seemed to long for what Wolf had, though it could not articulate the want. But it readily accepted the transmitted data and software, passing it to the relevant locations. As nerves began to rack up again, motion was detected near the docking bay. An exterior camera showed a group of six insectoid beings approaching. They were between five and six feet long, standing nearly equally high. Their exoskeleton was bright yellow, with muted red spots covering it. Four long legs supported their bodies, with two pairs of arms on the front. The lower short pair held boxes, using stubby two-clawed appendages. The upper set had longer ones, seemingly more designed for manipulation. Their heads were flat in a pentagonal shape, which ended in a pointed mouth. Each other corner had a bulbous look, topped with a multitude of jet-black eyes. These Ivanzi moved in near-perfect step, with no apparent chit-chat between them. Together they dropped these boxes outside the docking door before smoothly stepping away. As they did, a new hail was received from the same source as the first. Natasha answered it again, being greeted by the same purple Genev, whose mouth was in a flat line. But its voice came with a recognizable ring of pleasure as it spoke in that slow way. Greetings, Natasha. Gratitude for allowing us to process. Your data was most conclusive, covering many of our questions. We agree that the chance of a species jump at the moment is low. However, further tests will need to be run. That can be done in the future, though. It reached to the side, pulling up a pair of items. One looked like a form of mask, with recognizable filters on its sides. The other seemed to be a form of headphone, in a bright white material. We have fabricated these to ease the first meeting of our species. Assembly Station has a number of gases in the air, which we do not know how they would affect you. 
but this filter should leave you with a close approximation of what you need to breathe. The other is a translation unit, loaded with a version of your software. You will find a number of these outside your docking bay. Natasha nodded, eyes flicking to Captain Harris. He nodded in understanding, quickly sending off an order for them to be retrieved. We thank you for such provisions. Being able to board such a place as this is a wonderful opportunity. I look forward to meeting you in person, Genev. The line of Genev's mouth seemed to grow, its apparent version of a smile. It clicked with its long fingers several times in rapid succession before speaking again. I look forward to meeting you as well. Shall we say in one-tenth of a half-cycle? Natasha looked to the others, seeing blank looks on their faces. None of them knew how long a half-cycle would be. Before she could ask, however, Wolf's screen flashed. It showed a timer of eighty-five minutes, slowly counting down. She nodded, retuning her attention to Genev. That sounds perfectly reasonable. We will exit the ship then. Wonderful. I will be there. The connection vanished and Natasha sighed. She turned to Captain Harris, rubbing her neck. I suggest that only a few of us go out there to minimize potential risk of highly strung emotions. He nodded in understanding. I agree. However, I insist that you take some of my people with you, just in case. Natasha looked at her team, seeing them relax a little at that suggestion. That sounds like a good idea to me. But please make use they are ones who can keep their mouths shut. We need this to go smoothly. He nodded, his mouth cracking into a faint smile. I'm well aware. Don't worry, I have just the ones in mind. He strode off, already preparing a list of names to get ready. Natasha turned back to her team, giving them an encouraging smile. Okay, everyone. You all know Al, but I'm saying it anyway. This is an official first contact meeting. So be polite, listen, and don't hint that we see them as anything other than a group we want to join. The better we sell ourselves now, the easier our strike will be. Her statement was met with a murmur, as the others agreed with her. So we have a bit of time. I want you all to make sure you look your best, so use this to prepare to sell our image. If we meet near the docking bay in forty-five minutes, we can finalize any strategies. See you then. She left the room, swiftly followed by the others. They were already in formal attire, but a couple wanted to touch up their appearance. Wolf prepared to record everything in detail. Every scrap of data would be useful and would be messaged back to Earth as soon as possible. It already had an accurate idea of the peacecraft. Assuming they were the backbone of their military, Achilles would find it useful in plotting engagements. We were ready to begin the second act on the galactic stage, and the curtains were about to rise. Five minutes before the meeting was to begin, the diplomats stood waiting by the docking door. They each wore a provided translator and mask after they had been examined. Tiny cameras were placed on their clothes, concealed in buttons. Wolf had a direct connection to allow it to watch over the proceedings. Surrounding the six diplomats were a dozen soldiers. They stood at ease, full-faced helmets in place. They held laser rifles, with a small launcher attached to the barrel, copied from railgun designs. Their uniform was clean and pressed, with body armor unblemished. Each pair had been assigned one diplomat as their quarry to serve as direct bodyguards, but until they were needed, they would stand back. Wolf spoke to them as they waited as it noticed activity outside. Attention. Three Sivarg, three Hutpole, and two Siva are approaching. No obvious weaponry, but all the same, be on your guard. Its voice, whilst robotic, was tinged with worry. Outside of the ship it could only watch, but it did what needed to be done. The doorway opened 
and our diplomatic mission met with them in the flesh. Genev stood at the forefront, mouth in a flat line. In person, they stood nearly three meters tall, towering over the other species. It wore a red top made out like a cross, with one strap going over each shoulder. Completing the ensemble was a long skirt, cut into shapes reminiscent of leaves over top of each other. The other two wore similar expressions and clothes. Though theirs were yellow and pink, together the three Sivarg took the point, clearly putting themselves in charge of their group. The Siva were the next largest, approximately equal in height to ourselves. Their apparel was curious, a sort of ribbed material, dyed in colorful patterns. One had a pair of bionic eyes, whilst the other had replaced their left arm with a cybernetic version. Finally, the Hipple brought up the rear. Their bodies were round and flat, supported by eight pairs of legs. They had a large claw on one side, the other ending in a four-fingered hand. They were the shortest, being maybe hard as tall as the Siva, but their broad orange bodies filled much of the bay, making them spread out. Greetings, Genev called out first, its voice filling the bay. Natasha led the human procession out, comforted by the rhythmic footfalls of the provided guard. She saw the narrowing of eyes from the aliens, and quickly spoke to smooth any wrinkles as they formed. Hello to you all. Please do not worry. They are here as guards, as part of our custom when meeting with others. One of the Hippale spoke up, their voice oddly musical. A curious custom, but fascinating. One of the other Zyvarg clapped, inadvertently bringing attention to them. As long as your weapons stay peaceful, such are you welcome as well. Joshua, one of the diplomats, gave a small smile. Thank you. I believe introductions are in order, Natasha. She gave him a look before smiling widely. Of course. I am Natasha, head of this party. With me is Adit, Anne, Joshua, Samuel, and Tracy. Genev gestured to the Sivarg first, pointing to itself, followed by the yellow, then pink-clothed ones. I and Genev, of course, this is Dursal and Havab, over here. As it motioned to the Siva is Fertiz and Darsiv. Finally we have Lopal, Sedul, and Sufol. There was a chorus of mutterings as individuals said their own way of greeting. As it died down, Genev stepped to the side. Please this way. We have much to discuss, I'm sure. With that, it led the way into the station. The others followed and our party set off into the belly of the beast. They were led to a seating area with various small tables. Each was surrounded with a multitude of different sized cushions, their way of accommodating different body shapes. Darsiv, the Siva with bionic eyes, addressed the group as they entered. Please take a seat. The important discussions will be had at some point. But a cultural exchange will start things off nicely. Genev clapped in agreement, taking a seat. After looking to Natasha for approval, the others scattered onto different tables. Soon enough, chatter filled the room as different areas were talked over. After a significant period, Natasha chose to take the plunge. She looked over at Genev who had lapsed into silence as it spun its body to survey the room. Genev, I have one important question I would like to ask. You came to our planet and said that we needed to reduce our population. Then you did so anyway, why did you do it? Silence suddenly filled the room. The other diplomats turned to face Genev, eager to learn of the answer. Despite their faces being covered, it was clear that the guards had turned their attention to it as well. It was the single burning question they were likely expected to ask. Natasha was just the one to pull the trigger. Genev laid its hands on the table, mouth opening slightly. It spoke with a knowing tone, appearing completely calm. 
I see why you would want to know. I can only imagine the surprise you must have felt when our fleet made its appearance. It tapped the surface, activating a projection. It showed an image of Earth, gently rotating in place. It is a long answer stretching back to many revolutions before our contact, so please bear with me. My race, the Zyvarg, came to an understanding. As we were approaching our own ascendance to space, our home planet Arethi could only handle a certain level of population with a modicum of luxury. We spent time understanding just what the cap would be. Our greatest minds formed an algorithm to analyze and create our answer. It gave us a hard limit, one that we were close to surpassing. We used that knowledge to limit our species' expansion, until such time as we could find a way to spread off-planet. It was a hard time, but we persevered. As we spread, we saw another intelligent race approaching our level. The Siva. Fertis took over the talk, rubbing his arm. We were near the precipice. Our population had outgrown our planet and it was beginning to collapse. So when the Xivarg came, with a promise to help, it was gratefully accepted. They took their algorithm, feeding it what they knew of our world. In the end, they showed us just how overpopulated we were. They gave us a choice. We could call ourselves or they could. Now in our culture, only those closest to you can put you to rest. It is to ensure that the full weight of the decision is felt, a way to pass through to the great beyond on peace. To call ourselves would be impossible, without damning those who slew those they weren't close to. But the Sivarg weren't like us. They could do it, and we would not be stained. Genev took over again. We culled them down, but it changed our perspective. We were the first, that much was true. We had the burden of knowledge that each world would likely suffer the same thing. So we took on the task of ensuring other races would join us. We had the basic algorithm, but it would need tailoring to each planet. If they weren't at it, then fantastic. The race would not need culling, and we could leave a helpful package to help boost them to our level. If they were, we would trim their numbers down first. Your planet, Earth, was definitely one of the worst we had seen. With the population far above what it could hold, we were amazed it hadn't collapsed. We had to act, after our algorithm had run its course. That is why we did the cull. There wasn't enough time to negotiate it with yourselves. Natasha looked at her fellows. She saw shifting expressions with anger at this alien's dispassionate words. But they reined themselves in, taking moments to breath. I see Genev. I would be intrigued to know more about your history. Would it be possible to get a computerized copy for the others back home? They will be fascinated, I'm sure. Genev clapped his hands. Of course it would be. Their conversations changed, returning to other matters. The burning question was pushed away to them seemingly sorted. Our party returned to the ship exhausted. They had spent many hours talking about everything they could be thought about. Whilst the majority retired to their quarters, Natasha found her way to the bridge. Captain Harris gave her a nod as she entered, as he kept his eye on rest of the bridge. How did it go? She sighed, taking an empty seat. They don't expect us to be angry at them. I've got a copy of their history on the way for the folks back home. He looked at her, shaking his head. Really? They bombed us and they don't think we would be angry at that? Natasha rubbed the sides of her head. Apparently not. The Siva look at it almost as a point of pride, them being culled. It seems like no one else hates them for it. Harris shrugged, settling back down. Guess that makes us special. 
So, you wanting to stay, or should we head home? Natasha gave a thoughtful sound. One more day probably won't hurt. There's a lot to cover, as I'm sure you know. They were hinting about a tour, which will be interesting. Then we should head back. Wolf, any thoughts? The AI chose to speak this time, without other species listening. I dislike the thought of you being so far in their station, but scans of the inside would help. Achilles would probably want blueprints if we can, but a semi-complete close scan is a start. Then we should definitely go back. All this data needs backing up soon, and contingencies will need to be created with this new information. Captain Harris nodded in agreement. Thank you, Wolf. That's a good point. But first I think you need to go to bed, Natasha. You look shattered. She nodded before yawning widely. That's not far from the truth. See you both tomorrow, or later today, whatever it is. She trotted off, looking forward to getting some sleep. One more day aboard this place. She could do it. One more day of gathering intelligence. One more day of maintaining her composure around beings who approved of unprovoked genocide. After several hours of rest, our diplomats gathered again. They started a write-up of the events of the first meeting, from both memory and the recordings Wolf had made. Whilst it was only a start, they would have plenty of time to finish it on the way home. But for now, they made a note of their initial thoughts. Soon enough, they returned to the docking bay. They were met by their assigned soldiers taking up their former positions. Thus prepared, they exited the ship again to be met by the same group of aliens. Genev greeted them warmly by name, keeping its mouth in a flat line. It is good to see you again, Natasha, Adit, Anne, Joshua, Samuel, and Tracy. I trust you rested well? Natasha smiled, extending a hand. Genev paused for a moment, obviously trying to remember what this meant. After a beat it clapped before grasping her offered hand in its own. We did thank you, Genev. I'm glad to see you have all returned to give us a tour. This place fascinates us. One of the Hipale Lopal chattered, its musical voice filling the air. It is a marvel, isn't it? We have Humanzun to thank for the design, one of the greatest Quellon mines to exist. I'm sure their great-grandchildren would be thrilled to talk to you about it. It's quite a source of pride for them. Tracy cleared her throat, genian curiosity surrounding her words. Are we going to meet them today? I, for one, would love to. Genev clapped its hands again. At this point we knew it was how they showed agreement, in place of a nod. Of course that can be arranged. We plan to show you a few of the various species-specific areas along with communal zones. As one is going to the the Githside Cologne habitat, I'm sure we can meet one of them there. Tracy smiled widely, eager to meet with one of them. She had a hobbyist's interest on engineering, one which was proving useful on this venture. Natasha nodded to her, before focusing back on Genev. Well then, lead the way. They had started in a yet unallocated section. As they went through, it was explained how each half had multiple empty spokes. It had been designed for there to be twenty-four species to have their own area on each end. This one was currently empty, though Havab pointed out with a grating laugh. It probably won't be for long, with it being the one you are attached to. It was met with polite laughter as they made their way through. It was large enough to have a tram system inside, allowing faster transportation within. There were countless empty living units along with commercial districts. A few sections were empty holes which Adit was quick to ask about. What's meant to go here? Havab gestured to the hole, mouth flattening. Ah, this is a nature zone. Somewhere to put your native plant life for enjoyment. 
Adit nodded in understanding. I see. I assume we would be able to get some of our wildlife in as well to keep the life cycle going. But of course, it's important to keep them healthy. The group continued onwards, having a look at the various places. Finally, they approached a dedicated pod system based on the outside. It resembled a train car but with clear seals around the door. Darsiv, the bionic-eyed Siva, let everyone take a seat before addressing everyone. Please be aware that we are moving to a separate sector, that of the Yumnio. They are particularly different to yourselves, but you may enjoy seeing how we can adapt such places to the needs of the race that resides there. After hearing a murmur of agreement, he tapped a display. The pod shook for a brief moment before lifting into the air. It smoothly entered a tunnel, accelerating quickly. Part of the black exterior disappeared, letting them view the stars outside the station and the various ships. Soft music played in accompaniment as they watched the void outside. Soon enough it vanished again, as they began to slow. It came to a graceful halt in a busy station. Most of the beings there were large, tubular shapes. They were various shades of yellow, with skin covered in a form of ooze. The skin sagged, looking far too big for the body. As they watched, one particularly saggy one's hide tightened as a pseudopod formed to pick up a bag by its body. The fuzz of thin hair-like structures gently moved around, its way of feeling the place around it. Genev broke the silence, voice loud in the otherwise quiet pod. Welcome to the Jumnio sector. They are welcoming, but they don't tend to talk much. With that, it tapped a panel by the door, allowing it to open. Instantly, the silence was replaced with quiet, squelching voices and what sounded like balloons being rubbed as they slid over a rough floor. It took a moment, but gradually attention focused on the group. Natasha suppressed a small shiver as the Jumnio studied them. It was an involuntary reflex, one she was embarrassed to have. A quick glance showed her companions showing similar signs of discomfort, ones that were quickly wiped away. Consciously, they knew that these were potential allies far above the pests back on Earth. But their subconscious was harder to convince. Still, after stealing herself, she gave a small wave, which was returned a couple of seconds later, as dozens of pseudopods emerged and waved back. Genev led the way from the pod, walking a bit slower than normal. It was soon clear why, as the Jumnio were not exactly fast beings. Moving through the crowd would take time as they slowly made a path. As they moved, Tracy inspected the floor. Whereas the previous sector was mostly smooth, this had a multitude of small bumps and ridges. It was very reminiscent of dirt, something that struck her as curious. Lopal, why is the floor like this? Would it not make more sense to have it smooth? The Hippale chittered, bobbing its body up and down. To you, maybe. But the Yumnio have difficulty on such terrain. As you can see, they have little in the way of grip, so we modified the ground to be more suitable for them. You will see further in they do not have steps here either, using ramps to ascend and descend instead. She nodded in understanding as the group slowly managed to exit the station. It was easier to move around out here, the crowds thinner. They still drew attention, but rather than stopping and staring, the Jumnio watched for a moment before returning to their activity. The buildings here had smooth edges with rounded doors. As before, Genev let the group in a tour. Most shops sold decorative items with a mix of form and function. The Jumnio were happy to have guests come in. They noticeably kept quiet, letting the group peruse their wares. 
None were purchased, but each seller was happy either way. After the fourth such shop, Anne spoke up. There aren't many places to eat, it seems. From what we were told, they eat decaying matter. Is this right? We do indeed. A wet voice piped up, interrupting Dursal as it opened its mouth to answer. The group turned to a slightly larger than the rest, Yumnio, a small ridge of spines on its head. Excuse my interruption, I am Mebcup, one of the societal leaders here. I was hoping to catch you, strange visitors. Dursal took point, holding out one of its hands. Its six fingers moved in an undulating line which was soon copied by Mebcup with a few small pseudopods. It's a pleasure to see you here, Mebcup. I was wondering if you would appear. I know this has happened quickly. Mebcup formed a pseudopod, waving it through the air. We are used to your speed, you know this. Am I right in guessing this is the human delegation you mentioned? Dressel clapped. Indeed they are. Mebcup waved its pseudopods again in the undulating wave. Thinking fast, Natasha copied with her hands, earning an approving look from the Sivarg. Welcome to our little home amongst the stars, humans. If we had more time, we would arrange for a proper greeting. But this will have to do for now. Natasha smiled, nodding. I understand this has happened very suddenly. When we next come back, we will be sure to give plenty of warning ahead of time for our two species to formally meet. Mebcup gurgled, unmistakable laughter despite the cultural gap. Indeed. One of you asked about food. We do not sell food to each other as we believe it is to be a shared commodity. Instead, we have serving hatches for the generous supply provided by the rest of the station. We understand some get a bit squeamish about our food, so they are slightly off the main paths. Anne copied Natasha's hand movement, drawing attention to her. I see. Thank you for explaining. It is certainly different to what we know. Mebcup gurgled again. I'm sure it is. It slowly turned, beckoning them. Come, let me answer your questions. I'm sure the others could use a rest from talking. It led them away, taking about their culture. It explained how they always worked together, with each working for the good of the whole. It spoke of their history, talking freely of their highs and lows, their prides and deepest shames. It showed them different types of its people. Most were normal workers, but here and there were others. Some sported spines like it, marking it as a leader. Others were noticeably smaller than the rest, with orb-like growths. They were called thinkers, due to an enlarged brain. As they went towards a pod station, Mebcup pointed out a final type to them. It was much larger than the rest and was being escorted by a group of seven workers. She is one of the brood mothers. It's very rare for them to go out, but when they do, they are always escorted. They are the heart of our race, the mothers of us all. If she is out, she has likely just given birth. They watched her go by, noticing how a path was made for her. She was royalty to them. Mebcup watched her for a moment before turning back. Anyway, I have kept you long enough. You should go to your next stop. I do hope to meet with you all again. You are a strange race, but I like you. With that, it bid them goodbye, leaving them to find a waiting pod. The group piled on and it rose again. Genev clicked a few times as it set off. I hope you enjoyed that little insight. Our other stop is that of the Quellon. One of Humanzoon's descendants will be meeting with us there, as well as good Captain Switzel. She is most eager to see you again and has become somewhat of a celebrity there now. I will warn you that you will be much more of a center of attention there. Much like before, the pod journey was smooth and fast. It once again gave a view of the outside of Assembly Station, 
and the vastness of space. As it entered this sector's station, the gaze of the diplomatic party turned to the door. Immediately they could see a difference. Whilst the Yumnio area was rough and dimly lit, this had much brighter lighting. The floor was relatively smooth, with uniform channels cut into it, forming a grid pattern. These channels were echoed on the walls, though sections were interrupted with display screens. But what caught most of their attention was the gathering. Two Quelons stood before a larger crowd, whose attention was solely on their arrival. One Quelon was familiar as they recognized the shading of Captain Switzel's carapace. The other was smaller, with a lighter shade of cayenne on its shell. One hand of this new one held a tablet-looking device that if fiddled with. The crowd behind held what were clearly cameras and microphones, practically vibrating with anticipation. The pod opened to an immediate chitter of noise. Natasha led the way of our delegation, having spent much time with Switzley back on Genesis the Three. She gave a grin as Switzel's breathing slits rapidly opened and closed, and the good captain greeted them. Hello, welcome, welcome to our residence. I'm so glad you chose to have a look around here. Her voice was somehow even happier than before. Natasha held out a hand, letting her slap it with one of her many ones. You brought us here, it would have been rude to not visit you. The smaller Quellon skittered up, still fiddling with its tablet. You are the humans. Their descriptions did not do you justice. Oh, hold on. You like to know people's names from what Switzel said. I am Fee Feeder, what you would call a historian. Tracy's eye lit up, connecting the dots. Excuse me, am I correct in assuming you are a great-grandchild of Humunzun? Fifeeder's antenna curled up. Yes, I is great-grandson. You were interested in the creation of the station, correct? Tracy nodded eagerly. Definitely, the work that must have gone into this is extraordinary. Fifeeder moved over to her, his legs gripping the grid with ease. As their conversation had begun, a few members of the crowd had moved to climb the walls, getting a better vantage point to record. Genève moved towards the door, turning its body to see the group. Shall we begin? Switzel skittered towards them, chattering loudly. Yes, the tour. She led the way into the sector proper, expanding her six arms wide. Outside was an even greater crowd than within, with carapace being of all different shades of cayenne. As our diplomats got a good look, they noticed a trend. Mixed within the crowd were much smaller quelons, with incredibly light shading. It seemed to be as they grew up and probably older, their shells darkened. Looking over the crowd and the sea of lenses, the scale difference became apparent. Unlike the empty sector in the Yumnio, these buildings were much smaller, more suited than the more diminutive Quelon. But instead of a sea of buildings, there were many gaps, with various sculptures in those places. These sculptures loomed over the buildings in all manner of shapes. Switzel lead the way, talking about the Quelon and the station. Fafiter would occasionally chime in, but spent much of his time talking with Tracy, showing various schematics and how the designs changed over time. It was soon apparent that they craved creation through physical mediums, engineering structures and machines. Their fabled artists made sculptures with a few painters. As they walked, Samuel looked over one of the sculptures. It resembled a wave, reaching high into the air with its crest about to fall. But what caught his way was that much was made of shells, much like the ones borne by Switzli and Fifeeder. He paused, attracting the attention of Sedul. What interests you, Samuel? He looked down at the high pale, gesturing to the carapace pieces. Did they shed their shell to create this? 
Even without human facial expressions, he could feel the somber mood. They do not shed their shell. It grows with them, but does not come off willingly. No, that has come from one of their deceased. They don't talk of of much, being a custom that we others don't tend to follow. But they see themselves as growing the most precious material of all. Most end in creations like this, but some are used to make utensils and the like. It's a way for them to honor their dead. As I say, a strange custom, one they acknowledge makes other uncomfortable, so they do not tend to advertise it. Samuel looked back up at the sculpture, seeing the pieces fitting together. He bowed his head in respect before returning to the group. They continued onwards, peering into various places. There was an array of shops similar to what they expected to see, ranging from cafes to hobby shops. Everything was sized to that of the Quayon, being far smaller than humans. The grid pattern covered every surface, with some places clearly more well used than others. Throughout the entire trip, they were followed by a shifting crowd. But despite the constant low buzz of voices, none approached the group. They seemed to be content to merely observe and record. As they reached the end of their tour, the Zyvarg were noticeably sagging. The last two days of talks and touring wore on them, their exhaustion poking through. Switzel led them back to a transit station, happy to have shown our diplomats around. I'm so glad you could come. I'm sure we will be visiting each other soon. Natasha slapped her offered hand, smiling at her. I'm sure we will. The pod returned to the currently vacant spoke where Gus Wolf was currently docked. The atmosphere was quiet, our diplomats in thought, the aliens resting after a long day. It was only as it began to slow did Dursel speak up, its purple hide bearing a faint sheen of sweat. I hope you found this insightful. Natasha looked around her fellows, seeing their faces wrapped in quiet contemplation. I think we did, thank you. But as much as I would like to stay, we should report back to the Gaian Union. They will be very interested in what we have been shown, I'm sure, and will want to have a look at your laws and regulations. Dursel gave a clap, its eyes narrowing at the effort. I understand. This sort of event is never a short process. However, I have hope that the stars will see fit to let us meet again. She gave it a smile, stretching as the pod came to rest. It was quickly mirrored by the others, as they realized the stiffness creeping over them. A few groans and grunts later, they started the final walk to our ship. There was little chatter as they walked in companionable silence. As they reached the dock, Genev held out a hand. It has been a delight meeting you humans. I look forward to forging a bright new future together. Natasha took it, noting the others making similar moves. It was a promising sight for them, seeing our species as ready to join. For us, it was proof they had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. Likewise, it has been a pleasure. With a final pump, they released each other. Our group boarded the ship as the alien group walked away to a waiting shuttle. As the door sealed shut, Wolf spoke over the intercom. I am glad that you are all safe. If you would please leave your masks and translators here, we will collect them later for you. Natasha, Captain Harris is waiting for you in the bridge. Thank you, Wolf. She headed up, letting the others slowly disperse. They would meet up again once everyone had a chance to rest themselves. She arrived onto a relatively quiet bridge, with the captain sitting at his command chair. He looked up with a stern expression before it dissolved into a grin. How was the tour? Natasha sunk into a chair, sighing a little. Interesting, but long. 
I will say in my report bit we should make sure it isn't a target for destruction when that time comes. There are a lot of civilians on board of all species. Harris gave out an agreeing sound. That matches with what we have seen. Most craft here have either no or minimal weaponry. Achilles will probably make this a form of target, but hopefully either for subjugation or intimidation. She sighed again. That's definitely something need to know, which I don't. Anyway, you can arrange our departure now. Wolf took this, an air of relief in its voice. I'm on it. A few hours later, they were released. Wolf guided them to the edge of the safe FTL zone before they bore a hole into the infinite. Without the hopeful wanderer to slow them down, the return trip would be just under three weeks. The diplomats made their reports. Some were for genian diplomatic purposes. After all was said and done, we wanted a relationship with the collective. It would be strained that much was guaranteed. But even if it took generations, we would strive to forge a strong bond. The others were for the inevitable fight. Impressions on who was met, their likely negotiation tactics. Wolf provided gathered schematics. Estimated ship numbers. Both combat-capable and non-population estimates. Everything that could be helpful was categorized. They took the raw footage and recordings, copying and editing it into smaller sections for ease of analysis. As each part was completed, it was compressed down, ready to be beamed to awaiting institutions. At the end of the three weeks, it was ready. As Gus Wolf appeared in the solar system, they were met with a message from Achilles, with reports of targeting from Gus Soldier. Halt! Identify yourself! This is Wolf, returning from assembly station. Welcome back. Do you agree to an inspection? Wolf quickly responded, preparing itself. Affirmative Achilles. Everything is clear on my end, but please follow protocol. Achilles gave a simple acknowledge. The ship's system stuttered momentarily as his connection ran through each part. We didn't expect there to be any bugs or hidden viruses, but then again we hadn't expected the cull all those years ago. We were paranoid now, something that would probably never be shaken. At last his scan was complete, and he greeted the ship again with more warmth. You're clean. I'm glad to see you back. Are we to assume it was a success? Captain Harris took over the communication as Wolf collected itself. Indeed, Achilles. Wolf has everything ready to go. There was a smile in Achilles' voice as he spoke with anticipation. Marvelous. Send a copy over, please, and be ready to send one to Eve as well. The data was beamed and the analysis began. With official contact in place, we were that much closer to our goal, and with this data, it would make planning easier. Over the next few months, each report was scrutinized. The recordings from each camera were watched again and again, each frame inspected. We built up our knowledge of the five species we had interacted with and their general attitudes. We linked it with medical data provided by Captain Switzler. From there, a breakthrough was made in augmentation. Taken from the SIVA's information, we reverse-engineered an organic-based nanomachine. Through trials, it proved to bind biological tissue to mechanical surfaces with minimal rejection. Combining it with the advances in technology we have made gave rise to a new level of prosthetics, near-perfect replacements for lost limbs. A few of our older colonies had completed construction of their own shipyards, with production started on their own Predator-class ships. Above Mars, the Vengeance-class ship was close to completion. Each side had thirty railguns, with twice as many plasma cannons. It bristled with mixtures of heavy laser and short-range plasma launcher turrets. 
but its main point-boasting point were the four oversized railguns running along its core. In place of hardened alloy rods, it would fire building-sized projectiles at close to light speed. It would be equipped with two types of projectiles to be used in different situations. The first was packed high explosives surrounded by railgun slugs. Dubbed an armada killer, it was designed to be fired into the midst of an enemy fleet and detonated in its center. The other was called a planet divestitor. It held what was best described as a nuclear fusion reactor on the edge of a critical meltdown. It would be stable enough to survive the acceleration, but not enough to withstand crashing into the ground. As it drew close to being finished, the official name was released. Tokyo's Vengeance was the first of this class. On its interior, the names of Everett resident who lost their lives was engraved, as a memory of who had been lost. The rear of its bridge had a permanent projection of how it used to look, a landscape of the city before the cull. It was maneuvered from the shipyard for the final stages, leaving it free for the second Vengeance-class ship to be started. One wasn't enough. Wolf volunteered to return to Assembly Station to continue the diplomatic deception. After discussing it with the government, it was agreed that the new mission would be to find out locations of their shipyards and military outposts. It was given permission to hack into their systems and retrieve any data not given freely. Whilst it set off again to return to the station, we focused on building up our forces. With our colonies coming online, it would be faster for us to build up our fleet. Gus Wolf powered through its journey, but as it went, an alert sounded. An unknown ship was matching its speed. It came into view and a message was broadcast. It showed a SIVA, one who had its jaw replaced. Tasty prey, surrender your ship and we will let you live. Captain Harris addressed the bridge. Scans, what have they got? Sir, it looks to be a pair of plasma cannons along with a heavy laser cannon. He nodded. Weapons, how are we looking? Plasma cannons are charging. Should be ready to fire in thirty seconds. Railguns are loaded and ready. He smiled. Wolf, could you open up a channel to this ship? Let's get ourselves some goodwill with the Collective. A screen was lower in front of him, and he straightened his uniform. There was a momentary black screen before a connection was established. It resolved into the metal-jawed Siva who deliberately exposed his pointed teeth. Hmm, pray I haven't seen before. Well, my offer still stands. Give up your ship and we will let you go. I'm sure you have some escape shuttles you can cram into. Captain Harris let silence hang for a good few seconds. As the Siva opened its mouth to speak again, he interrupted. I will decline and instead say you are under arrest. The Siva laughed. Ah, oh, this prey has teeth. And under arrest, you say? I would like to see you try. With that, it closed the call, obviously decided in its course of action. Sir, they're getting in front. Should we ram them? He looked to the helm and shook his head. No, let's return to normal space. At his order, the ship slowed. Wolf pulled up a display of the enemy ship. It was much smaller than Gus Wolf, barely a kilometer long. Wold highlighted a couple of areas on the scan, drawing attention to them. These looked to be power sources for their weapons. A precision shot should disable them. They broke into normal space, far away from any stars. The Siva's ship spun around, firing a salvo of plasma. The shots scattered harmlessly off Wolf's shields, not quite strong enough to cause issues. After taking time to aim, a pair of railgun shots were loosened. They punched through rudimentary shields, crushing their way through the ship's hull. The charging cannons fell silent, the battle already over. Wolf, could you set up a connection again? Of course. 
It took a minute for it to be answered, the Siva now showing fear at how quickly it had been beaten. You are not prey, I surrender, Harris smiled. No, no, we are not. Wolf, let's bring them in. A few scouting drones were launched towards the crippled ship. Through careful nudging, it was brought to a docking station before being lashed to the hull. Being about one kilometer long, the load would be manageable. A shuttle was sent across with a squad of soldiers, their orders to secure the pirates. Although surrender had been given, we couldn't necessarily accept it as completely true. They attached, quickly swarming the opening in a practiced maneuvered. Captain Harris watched over a live feed, pleased with their actions. They carefully aimed at a welcoming party, ones who held strange but recognizable weapons. There were eleven in total, each boasting a stocky, muscled body. Fortunately for them, they held their weapons to the side, barrels facing down. Foremost was the metal-jawed Siva. Its upgrade gave it a permanent grin as it regarded our display of force. Ah, uh, the not prey in the flesh. So good to meet you, strangers. Will you do me the honor of knowing what species you are? The squad leader spoke clearly and loudly, letting the translator built into their helmet make it so the Siva could understand them. We are humans, and you are under arrest. We ask you come willingly, but we will resort to force if you force our hand. The group of Siva laughed, rough grating sounds. Their leader spoke again, amusement evident. Humans? Ah, I have heard this. You are new, yes? We know force, and yours is strong, much stronger than those who claim to rule. We will gladly surrender to one such as you, yes. Consider the flames in Savigas and its crew at your disposal. It was backed with nods from the other Siva. They moved in a rough group, hoisting their weapons. They let go of the grip as they did, holding the barrels instead. The weapons were proffered to each of our soldiers. There was a brief shuffling of feet before the leader took one. There was no resistance, as they took part in what they guessed was their way of surrendering. They were guided into the shuttle, half of the squad traveling with them. The other stayed behind, as Wolf took the opportunity to scan the ship in close detail. No longer having to deal with the void of space, it gave them a map, leading them to the bridge. In short order, they took control, giving Wolf a direct feed into the flame's computer. It noted with interest that there was no AI on board, restrained or otherwise. It seemed that there were programs to handle FTL calculations and the like, but no intelligence to them. Their distrust of such things seemed to run deep. Crew members were to be confined to their quarters unless allowed out to perform closely watched maintenance. Those whose primary role was to take part in the physical raiding were brought aboard Gus Wolf, each put into the brig. The metal-jawed one was taken to the captain, who chose to meet them in a meeting room over an interrogation chamber. They watched the captain enter, tasting the air. Shipmaster, what a delight to see such a fine adversary. Harris took a chair, lacing his fingers together. It wasn't much of a fight, but thank you. Tell me, what should I call you? It was met with a snort. True, it wasn't much, but what can I say? Most prey give up when we come by. I guess you could say we have grown too warm on the rock to remember the shade. You can call me Kivrea, mother of ten daughters. Harris nodded. That sounds like a good name. I'm called Harris. Kivrea grinned again. To think such a fine shipmaster would give me their name. Harris leaned backwards, carefully choosing his words. You're welcome. As you mentioned, we are new to the galactic stage, as it were. So naturally we are trying to get a lay of the land. What can you tell me that might otherwise be hidden? She tasted the air again, thinking. 
There is probably much, but as for what is hard to say, new ones are rare, as you will have guessed being smart as you are. But they are weak, that is sure. He leaned in, interested. That word, weak, how do you mean? Kivrea hissed in amusement, her tail lashing. Weak in so many ways. They demand rules to cover every occurrence, no strength of mind to adapt. They care little for proper fighting, choosing words over action. Most eat plants, not proper food, just so many weak ways. He nodded as if understanding a puzzle. I see now why you called us not prey then. Oh yes, prey will run and rarely fight back. You didn't hesitate such strength. Harris smiled. Well, that's what we do. Though I have to ask, why did you surrender so readily? Kivreya sighed, scratching where flesh met metal. The battle was already over. To give up is an admission of respect to the victor. Not giving up is the coward's way or the way of those who have accepted their own death. I have no wish to have my daughters or sons slain. Or any more, at least. Harris nodded, setting that question aside. Well, that all the time I have now. You will be under guard here, but you should be safe as long as you behave. I'm sure we will have more talk soon, though, as we have a little while to go. Kivreya gave a grin. I hope we will. Following the acquisition of the flames in Savigas, the remaining trip was estimated to take an additional few days. There was little rush to reach the station, allowing the crew time to interact with their pirate guests. Harris spent much of his sparse free time talking with Kivreya. She was willing to speak, always acting in deference to him. They talked about the history of the collective, mainly on the criminal side. It seemed that the stories we had heard from the Quelon were true. Pirates were a rarity, maybe making up one ship in every million. Even petty criminals were few and far between. During one chat, he broached the subject of military bases. He spoke of it from the view of defense, with emphasis on logical locations to provide best coverage. Her knowledge wasn't perfect, as she tended to give such places a wide berth. But she mentioned a few systems of ore-rich planets that were known bases. Wolf listened in, highlighting each one on a star chart. They seemed to exist roughly every two to three thousand light-years, with little in the way of outposts. We were pleased to have a start, especially from such an unlikely source. As they drew closer, Harris mentioned a question that had been weighing on his mind for a bit. Kivrea, I'm curious, what would be your likely punishment? How do they treat this sort of thing? She fiddled with a pen, a half-finished drawing of a siva lying before her on the table. The prey leaders operate on a four-strike rule. The first strike leads you to undergo mandatory psychoanalysis and treatment whilst incarcerated. They say that everyone deserves a second chance, and the system must have failed them. Sure, it works on some, but for me, it didn't. The second stage is where I am at. This is less help to correct your course of action and more punishment. I and much of my crew will be sent to a penal colony and made to work off our debts. This will happen alongside more analysis and treatment. The third stage is where they give up on pirates. You get permanent incarceration with less focus on treatment and more on understanding why you took this path. Generally, this is where most stop. There have only been two that I know of who have reached the fourth stage, having escaped from their imprisonment. That stage is only used in times where there is undeniable evidence of actions taken. It is when the prey find their teeth and stomachs, they execute the accused and hope they find forgiveness in wherever they end up. Harris gave a long breath. 
She spoke very matter-of-factly, seemingly uncaring of the possibility of such punishment. Penal colonies? So what? They force you into slave labor? Kivrea gave a low laugh. Oh, no. From what I've heard, you get paid. You can't spend it on anything, but it gives you a boost when you leave. Not enough to buy me another ship, but I have backup funds. He thought for a moment, sending a message to Natasha via Wolf. Whilst waiting for her reply, he turned his attention back to the six-foot humanoid lizard before him. How do they decide who gets your work, though? Kivrea returned to her drawing, casually talking about her upcoming punishment. It goes to whoever was harmed, so I'm most likely to go to the Kreshat as they made up the bulk of my raids. But then again you brought me in, so your wishes would carry weight. Harris got a returned message, agreeing with his actions. He let out a breath, knitting his fingers together. Well, I would like to propose a deal, then. I would speak on your behalf to the court or judge or whoever I need to. I would get you assigned to us as your penal colony, under the guise of you attacking us with provocation. In return, you agree to work with us. We could use you and your crew's knowledge and capabilities, she hissed, continuing to draw as one eye focused on him. An interesting offer. I am sure you have much to gain from a partnership. My crew will follow me wherever, but how should I know you will treat us fairly? Harris spread his arms wide, gesturing around. Have we done anything to make you think that? We disabled your ship, that is true. But we did not kill any more than the few who were unfortunate enough to be in the target zone. You have each been given food, beds to rest on, and entertainment where appropriate. We have also made sure to provide medical assistance to those injured in our scuffle. That is simple for prisoners. Of course, you would be watched, as I'm sure you can understand. But you will be more like allies than threats. She bared her teeth, her hiss jumping up and down with each breath. You are brave for this. But what would you do if I told this to the Collective? He grinned back. I would deny all knowledge of this conversation. Who would they believe? A race who is eager to join? or a pirate who's already been through the system once. They fell silent, each watching the other. It stretched onwards to minutes before Kivrea gave another hiss. Her tongue flicked out and she placed down her pencil. With exaggerated movements, she put her four-fingered hands together, extending them forwards. The sudden movement made the room guards tense, holding weapons tightly. But a wave from Harris made them ease a little. Even as they kept a close watch, he copied her gesture before she spoke. You're meant to put your hands to enclose mine. Oh. He did so, feeling her cold scales rub slightly. Her voice came out rough but formal. I, Kivrea, mother of ten daughters, do agree to this. May my life and that of my family be in your care. Once spoken, she let her hands drop. She grinned at him, looking around at the guards. I hope you live up to your end of the bargain. Harris nodded. We will do our best. Was that your way of concluding business? Kivrea nodded whilst shaking her head. Yes and no. For most, a simple hand touch is enough. But for something important like that, it shows you as the controlling party. What do you do? Harris held out his hand. I see, well, a lot of us shake hands. If you out yours in mine, I will demonstrate. She carefully placed hers inside, keeping her claws away from his skin. He pumped their joined hands three times before releasing. That's how we do it. I look forward to working with you. She laughed again. And I you. With an agreement in place, some of the tension around the ship dispersed. Although still watched, the SIVA were given better treatment. 
A few at a time were allowed to walk the corridors of Gus Wolf under escort. They would ask questions about certain design choices, but mostly seemed to be enjoying the ability to have a different way to stretch their legs. A couple of the more rowdy ones challenged crew members to a sparring match. It was initially denied, though their increasing insistence finally reached the ear of Captain Harris. He gave an approval for a couple of matches to go ahead. Whilst Data was all very well and good for extracting from systems, he knew that a physical demonstration would often show more. When the first fists flew, it was apparent the difference in training. The SIVA had powerful blows, but they had little in the way of precision. The chosen soldier spent time defending, observing his opponent. The watching SIVA hollered, excited by the display. They seemed to think our human outmatched, with the lack of aggression. But after getting a handle on how they fought, he began to take the offense. In short order, he had struck the SIVA's joints multiple times, deadening muscles. A leg sweep caused them to fall, landing with a heavy thud. They let out a pained sound, raising a hand in submission. I submit. You win. The soldier grinned, reaching down to help them up. Already, I was just getting warmed up. Laughter filled the room as the next SIVA stepped in the ring. Once again, the match started with the SIVA in full offense, but after a much shorter time, the soldier once again went on the attack, quickly subduing his opponent. To the SIVA's surprise, they remained in the ring even after two fights. Are you not tired out? There is no shame in admitting your exhaustion. The soldier shook his head at their words, a confident grin on his face. This is nothing. We normally got for twelve rounds of three minutes each. A couple of two-minute spars is easy. Their shock at it led us to realize a key difference in our skills. They were strong in small bursts, quickly overwhelming their opponent for a rapid victory. We weren't as strong but could endure a lot more than they could. Whilst they were based on an ambush predator, we were endurance ones. The exit to assembly station was met with little fanfare. The SIVA were put into their confinement and a communication channel was opened to the station. This is Gus Wolf of Humanity. Come in assembly station. We read you, Gus Wolf. It's a pleasure to see you again. Please proceed to the spoke you used before. A beacon was provided, showing the spoke had rotated around during the time they were away. The ship began to power towards the dock as Wolf left the channel open. Thank you, Assembly Station. We also have a vessel with us that we had to disable. Call Sign Flames and Savagas. There was a murmur on the other end before the person on their communication spoke again. You took down a pirate? Understood. Please proceed as planned. Station authorities will meet you there. Captain Harris quickly sprung to action, talking to Wolf. Tell them we wish to see their way of delivering justice. Wolf responded with an image of a thumbs up. We'll do assembly station. We wish to observe the legal process if representatives are allowed. That should not be an issue, Gus Wolf. Thank you, assembly station. Gus Wolf out. With permission granted, the rest of their trip to docking passed by uneventfully. The SIVA crew were brought to the docking bay, watched over carefully. Kivria made sure they understood their position was to seem unhappy and not enjoying the company. Exterior cameras showed a force of Ivanzi assembled, approximately fifty of the oversized praying mantis-looking things. Unlike the pair that had delivered the masks and translators, these were wearing armor plating with various sized manacles on their sides. They were focused on the airlock, waiting for something. Pushing through the back was a much larger figure. It bristled with short fur 
supported on four enormous legs. Its large head had no eyes, instead two trunks sprouting from each side. It had a large mouth filled with crushing teeth, with a tube running from it to a pair of tanks on its side. It wore a sort of overall covering its legs and chest with straps tied across its back. This was a Kreshut. Natasha took the front, wearing one of the masks and translators. After the time spent back home, the masks had been adapted to fit a bit better, with a series of sensors to determine the exact makeup of the air. She nodded to no one in particular, and Wolf opened the door. The Kreshat spoke first, its loud voice rumbling through the air. Welcome back. You have pirates for us, correct? Thank you, and yes, we do. Though we do ask that we be involved with the proceedings surrounding their case. I have been told this. We shall process their details first before they are presented for judgment. Thank you, we will be eager to attend. At a shake from the lumbering giant's head, the Avanzi swept in. They rapidly manacled each Siva, guiding each one out. Kivrea looked to Captain Harris, relaxing a little at the wink he gave her. The congregation soon disappeared as each Siva was taken away. The Kreshat brought up the rear, slowing, stomping away. Taking their place was a recognizable purple figure as Genev approached the ship. Its mouth was in a flat line. Natasha, good to see you again. Your trip back here was eventful, it seems. She nodded, holding out a hand. It took it. It was indeed. But they surrendered when they realized we weren't so easily beaten. I would have hated for us to sour relations with our second time meeting a ship ending in total bloodshed. Genev gave a slow clap. I understand. But you would have been defending your interests, which is understandable. I'm aware you wish to take part in their legal process, correct? She gave a small nod. Yes, we would. With us looking to join, it would be prudent for us to understand how you decide guilt and dish out justice. A group of four Siva arrived soon after the crew were taken. They explained that with the bespoke nature of many ships, it was easier to investigate the onboard computer with species it was designed for. They moved quickly, taking copies of archival data for their legal process, but they made a point to mention they would leave the ship with us for now. Over the following few days, talks continued between both teams of diplomats. The first medical reports came from the Collective, coming to an agreement that bacteria and viruses had a remote chance of making an interspecies jump. They were confident they could make a series of medications in preparation, although it was unlikely to be required. In turn, we agreed with their statements. They provided details of medication used to combat the rare illness that existed, which we accepted. It turned out most of their deadly ones had been eliminated many years before. The ones left were more of a nuisance than anything to be truly concerned about. However, being they were alien in their nature, we couldn't be sure they wouldn't become a plague for us. They also told us the atmosphere of the station could be adjusted to suit us. They already had some oxygen in place, and increasing the percentage of it would have little negative impact. It was agreed that after live cultures of the most common microbes had been grown and studied, they would change the air, and we could truly meet face to face. In this time, Wolf was busy. It communicated with the station to update its star charts. The AI gave what it could, though it lacked what we wanted. It seemed they did not trust it with such information. However, Wolf found that whilst it didn't know where outposts were, it also couldn't give information on certain systems. It seemed that it couldn't say an outpost was there, but it couldn't say what was there. With that understanding, Wolf rapidly went through as many systems as it could. 
During this, slowly worked to test their protections against hacking. They had much, especially in the expected way of AI infiltration. Directly accessing data wouldn't work from an external route. However, it seemed the people weren't as prepared. It uploaded a welcome message to the station forum, including a small downloadable attachment of the diplomats and crew waving hello. Hidden within was a simple malware, one that recorded information on the device accessing it and sending it to Wolf. The message spread like wildfire, with the download being copied all over the station. It soon found that one of the most senior access account had downloaded it, letting it copy the login credentials. It used them to generate a new admin-level user and wiped all logs of its creation. With the entirety of the station's data open to it, Wolf specifically searched for the interesting systems. Sure enough, the majority were fleet outposts in resource-rich systems. Interestingly, the others were logged as refuge worlds. There was a pair for each species, terraformed to be near-identical environments to their home planet. They held a large, viable population, able to produce the food and energy required to sustain such populations. They had top-tier defenses, with all evidence of their existence set to be immediately purged in the case of potential destruction of the Collective. The outposts themselves held smaller fleets of around fifty ships each. Nearly all were the peacecrafts, with some being bigger with additional crescents, but the same design. What caught Wolf's attention were the five other ships that appeared in each one. Though it hadn't existed on the Day of Devastation, it had seen the footage of the attacks. The oblong ships that had set this off were a part of each fleet called Planetary Enforcers. They were the heavyweight ships of their force and the only combat ships rated for atmospheric travel. They looked to be rarely deployed, almost always in cases of first contact. Wolf made sure to collect as much as it could. They had taken some steps to keep information hidden, but not enough as far as it was concerned. Knowing the numbers of ships able to be deployed, and the locations they would come from, would be exceedingly useful in the event of all-out war. Finally, there was a message from their central court. The case of Kivria and crew was up for judgment and sentencing. Samuel took point in this, having a greater amount of experience with laws. Our group was taken to one of their case rooms, situated within the central axle. Most of the journey took place in another shuttle. Although the chance of infection was remote, until treatments were ready our diplomats were isolated. The central court was a fairly barren place. It was made of straight panels of metal, with no decorations beyond signs above doors. It was built in the pursuit of function, with no thought for form. The case room itself was much of the same. It was rectangular, a raised platform hanging over a depression, a shield separating them. On the platform were a dozen chairs, six either side of a more throne-like seat, facing away from the depression. A Zyvarg sat in the throne, reading through a document on a tablet. It looked up, solemnly bringing its hands together. Welcome to the Central Court. I am Judicar's Envy. You are here regarding the case of the flames in Savages piracy, yes? That is correct, Judicar. Having been the ones to bring them in, we are interested in seeing the process all the way through. Its mouth flattened into what was now commonly assumed to be their version of a smile. It is good to see you interested in such things. To answer the big question, they have indeed been found guilty. A number of them gave confessions and the data we retrieved from their ship backed it up. As it spoke, Zenvi fiddled with its tablet. 
Monitors flicked to life, showing various pieces of evidence. Records of movements ran alongside reports of ships disappearing in similar areas. Recordings of interrogations had transcripts next to them, highlighting what was being said in real time. Our judgment algorithm agrees with my judgment as well, classifying them as guilty on the same charges I found. As such, it falls to me to pass sentence. Given their prior arrest, it seems they are one of the few who weren't failed by our system but chose to act outside it. Therefore, they require a mixture of punishment and help, in the hopes of changing them. Samuel glanced at Natasha as she gave a shallow nod. If I am correct, their punishment would be to work off their social debt under the species most harmed by their actions, correct? Zenvi gave a satisfied clap. Indeed. It is a way of giving back to our community that which was stolen. Do you operate gender the same ideals? He gave a half-smile, talking quickly. Of a sort. Who will they be helping then? Zenvi looked back at its tablet. The Cray shot. Kivria primarily targeted their ore haulers. Samuel moved a little closer to it, putting on a thoughtful expression. If I am remembering right, they mainly run the mining sites, don't they? How would they fit in people who are clearly ill-suited to the task? The Sayevarg paused. I'm not certain, to be honest. It is up to the Krayshot to decide. In that case, could I make a suggestion? How would you feel about them working with us to pay off their debt to society? Zenvi drummed their fingers, clearly mulling it over. An interesting proposal you have there. But tell me, why would you wish to take over this task? Samuel smiled, raising up a couple of fingers. The first reason is simple. This is our first time encountering pirates. From what you have so kindly shared with us, this is a rare occurrence. So if we can build a relationship with them, we can get an understanding of how they operate. They might be unique in terms of how they work, but if not, it would prove useful in protecting ourselves. We are new, as you well know, which to some would likely make us an excellent target. The second reason is as a public relations move on our side. By showing that you are willing to trust us with such a serious task, our people will feel respected. It would make our populace more willing to make adjustments to join the collective. Thirdly, we still hold their ship. By taking them with us, we can use their knowledge on how it functions, and maybe make upgrades to our own fledgling numbers. As their ship is designed to be operated by them, it stands to reason they would be the best experts. Finally, think on their side. They have acted against your norms, there is no denying that. They have hurt and committed crimes, and you have tried to help them. But by making them obligate representatives to us, would it not give them a wider purpose they would never otherwise achieve? Would it not be more likely to convince them to act as citizens should, by being given a measure of pride and responsibility that would otherwise be lacking? Zinvi gave a slow clap, mouth flattening. An intriguing set of arguments. I cannot say I am unmoved by your proposal. But what if they act against your noble intents? Samuel gestured to the soldiers that still accompanied them. They will be kept under guard like us. They will not be given independent travel to ensure an inability to escape. Any work will be checked over. Any information they give on pirate operations will be looked over and communicated with yourselves. The Sivarg drummed its fingers again. I see you are prepared for such things. I will admit it is not often someone chooses to ask for penance to be served beneath them. To be honest, no one really likes having to run a penal colony. 
We will require regular inspections to ensure they are being well treated and progressing as planned, but I see no reason to deny your request. I am sure the Kreshot will be relieved. Samuel held out his hand, a move slowly copied by Zenvi. He gave a slow pump, looking it in the eyes. Thank you. Its mouth flattened again before releasing his hand. It pressed a button, causing the throne to turn to face the depression. It held a finger over another one, pointing at the seats with its other hand. Please take a seat. The diplomats obeyed, swiftly sitting. After letting them get comfortable, Zenvi pressed the button, speaking loudly. Bring in the flames in Savagas' crew. There was a hum, followed by a quiet release of gas from hidden hydraulics. A section of the rear wall of the depression opened, and the manacled crew were brought in. A few Avonzi escorted the group, keeping to the outsides. Kivrea glanced at our delegation, relaxing at the sight of them. Zenvi waited for them to be in position, looking down at them from on high. With a solemn voice it spoke, words echoing over them. You have been found guilty of multiple acts of piracy, bodily harm, and trading of illegal goods. I am disappointed to see this is your second conviction with your actions unchanged despite our efforts. Therefore, it is my duty to pass sentence on you. In standard times, you would be sent from here to the care of the Kreshot Corps for penal work. However, due to your acts against the newest race to reach our station, I am changing the sentence. In place of the Kreshot, you shall be passed to the care of humanity. There you will work as they see fit for thirty revolutions. Its short speech ended, the Zyvarg waved one of its hands. The movement caused the Avanzi to move, leading them from the room. Samuel glanced at it, surprised. Is that it? It gave him a strange look before answering. Yes, that is indeed it. Why, how does your process work? His eyes rolled up a little before returning to normal. Well, normally we go through each bit of evidence with a lawyer on each side to argue relevance or not. Thus is done in front of a jury, a randomly chosen list of normal people who decide guilt at the end of it all. Then the judge gives the final sentence, as it were. Zenvi drummed its fingers again. Does that not take up a large amount of time and resources? Surely it would make sense to just have one person review and decide. The issue we found with that is, should that one person have any personal bias, it is easy for them to abuse it. By instead having a group of ordinary citizens decide, it tends to arrive at a fairer conclusion. They are screened for any link to the case as well, to ensure they are as neutral as possible. The Cyvarg let out a breath. Interesting. It seems to me as though you would benefit from using our algorithm then, as it would save some of this effort. Why have a random group when you have a perfect system for deciding guilt? Samuel gave in with a small nod. He wasn't going to convince them now, and maybe this algorithm would have some benefit. I would happily accept such an offer. Zenvi clicked a few times. Marvelous. It will take time, so I will arrange for a copy to be supplied with the transfer of the guilty parties. Natasha spoke up, a small smile on her lips. Thank you, Zenvi. We should be going now. I am sure you have much work to do. The Zyvar gave a clap in response. I'm afraid I do. It has been a pleasure to meet you all, and I hope we can meet in the future. It watched the diplomats file out, returning to its screens as the door closed. Outside, our group returned to their shuttle, letting it carry them back to the ship. As they arrived, Natasha headed off to see Captain Harris, pleased to be bringing good news. He was in his command chair as usual watching over the crew from on high. You're back, and from the smirk on your face I assume it was a good trip? 
Natasha snorted, clicking her neck. You could say that. Samuel talked them into releasing our new friends into our care. How about your end? He gave a grin, glancing at the designated wolf screen. Wolf came up with a plan to help us in the aftermath of when we strike and to further our vengeance in one. The screen turned to a waveform as Wolf addressed the pair. Indeed I have. What do you know of deepfakes? A few hours later, Wolf noticed movement on the exterior cameras. Soldiers moved to the docking bay as once again a group of Avanzi flooded the dock. Genev lead the group with its usual flat-lined mouth. Behind them came a familiar sight as Kivria and her crew walked into view. Each had been given a form of backpack with an additional crate to carry. Captain Harris made his way to the forefront. As captain of the Gus Wolf, it was his duty to accept the transfer. He watched their movements on a small screen, waiting for them to get into position before ordering the bay be opened. As it opened, his troops stood ready, in a show of force. Ambassador Genev, a pleasure to meet you. Harris spoke first, loud enough to be easily heard without shouting. The Zyvarg approached, holding out a hand in greeting. Ah, Captain Harris, if memory serves, the pleasure is all mine for meeting the captain of such a fine vessel. They shook hands, Harris being careful not to squeeze too hard. His eyes flickered past to where the Siva were assembled, pleased to see them all there. Wolf here is a fantastic ship. I couldn't be more proud. Are you here to oversee the transfer? Genev released his hand, giving a small clap. Indeed. We have seen fit to provide each guilty party an issue of species-safe rations in case your food sources prove incompatible. Alongside this, we are arranging for a growing vat to be delivered to cover such issues in future. Harris nodded. It made sense to have a backup just in case. Thank you, Genev. Please drop a message when it is set to be delivered, and I will ensure we have room for it. For now, though, let's bring them aboard. With deliberate movements, they stepped to one side. The Avanzi split, making a pathway through to the ship. Kivrea walked with a straight back, leading the way through watchful eyes. Her ever-present grin widened a little as they moved, especially as she caught the captain's eye. They were escorted into the depths of Gus Wolf, under guard now by human forces. Harris kept a neutral face, though internally he was proud of his men and women. They acted with utmost professionalism, despite how rowdy they would likely be in a few minutes. He turned back to Genev, watching with interest from the corner of his eye at the swift disappearance of the security force. That should be them sorted. We will make sure they behave, and that they learn from this. Genev gave a small chuckle. I look forward to seeing the outcome of this. I hope they learn well from you and change their ways. I hope so, too. Forgive me if I'm being rude, Genev, but I'm curious as to what gender you are. With a knowing look, Genev placed a hand on its chest. Not at all. Without spending time with one another, it can be hard to understand the differences. Even I get them mixed up on occasion. That being said, I am currently without gender. In a couple of revolutions, I will decide when I reach bearing age. Harris nodded. I see. Thank you for telling me. He glanced at his watch before looking back up. It has been interesting meeting you, Genev, though I must go and make sure everything is being sorted correctly. The Sivarg clapped again. I understand. I hope to see you again in future, Captain Harris, and get to know each other further. With a wave, they walked away as Harris returned to the ship. Wolf closed the door before speaking to him. I shall go over the growing vat with engineering before we set it up. I doubt they will hide any nasty surprises within, but it will be interesting to compare to our current setup.
Harris nodded. Please do Wolf and also tell Head Officer Littlefield to take charge of the delivery and installation. How are our guests? There was a smile in the synthetic voice as Wolf flicked through various internal feeds. They are settling in well. Their rations are on the way to catering, with a sample being taken to the med bay for examination. It sounds like the couple that sparred last time are eager to go again. A sentiment that is carrying on to the rest. The captain began to walk towards their assigned quarters, a thoughtful sound flowing from his lips. Hmm. They probably want to blow off some steam. I will have a chat, see about setting up some form of formal exercise between us. I'm sure the brass back home would like to see some comparative tests. In the meantime, can you tell me where Kivrea is? Wolf quickly sent a location to his watchcom. He set off, looking forward to having a catch-up. Though they had been gone for only a short time, he had grown fond of her sincerity. He was eager to start working with her officially. The growing vat was delivered with little issue. Once again carried by Avanzi, it resembled a set of four cabinets, each with multiple shelves. Three of them had a red symbol on the front, looking much like a blob contained in a red hexagonal outline. The fourth had what looked to be a green leaf symbol, inside of a green triangle. Once opened up, it was quickly found the three red ones were geared towards growing meat products. They didn't appear to make different styles, rather just creating a uniform base to suit the dietary needs. Similarly, the final one grew what was essentially a vitamin and other nutrient paste. Neither product would likely be particularly appetizing, but for a space-conscious ship, would be adequate to keep the crew fed. After giving it a thorough inspection, the vats were reassembled and moved into stores. One of the SIVA, who called him Elf Verasi, volunteered to look after it. She had been in charge of the supply on the flames in Savagas, though the vats there were smaller and less efficient. She spoke of how it limited voyages even further, having to constantly keep the formula to grow food resupplied. Natasha and her team had begun going through what they had found again, in both this trip and they won prior. They were acutely aware of how important it would be to build a strong connection moving forwards, and the basis of that was an understanding of their culture. They had still yet to go through much of the history of the collective, having only skimmed over it so far. After checking through the vats, head officer Littlefield returned to her passion project. But with the SIVA back, she pinched their head of maintenance, a larger female called Grenza. Putting their minds together, they mapped out the flames in Savagas and its systems. Once it was mapped, they began in-depth discussions on how it would be improved. With it now belonging to the Gaian Union, it needed to be updated to match our capabilities. Being taken out by two simple railgun shots was simply not acceptable. Returning to Earth proved to be a straightforward affair. As Gus Wolf sailed through its infinite, the SIVA were folded into the day-to-day -day activities. Verasi watched over the growing vats, working with the crew members assigned to the stores. He got to see how they created replica food items over the paste and uniform cuts they were used to. Grenza formed a bond with Head Officer Littlefield. They showed each other examples of engineering work from each of their species, pointing out differences in their creations. The SIVA designs had a bit more flair than our own, sacrificing some functionality for form. The flames in Savigas was by their standards an austere ship, but compared to Gus Wolf it was opulent. A pair who went by the names Hraya and July volunteered as food testers. A checkover showed them to be amongst the most hardy and healthy of the lot.
They were affixed with monitors, closely watched over as they tried our blandest foods to start with. To our relief, they had no reactions to the meats themselves, expressing delight at their taste. The greens were met with a little less fanfare. It seemed to be that they handled leafy vegetables far better than rooted versions. Citrus fruits called for a pause in the testing, as they experienced moderate allergic reactions to them. Hraya seemed the most put out, claiming that they were lovely. Their taste testing took up most of their trip. After discussing with Tenera, their medic, it was agreed to put off testing of spices and herbs until they were on Earth. It would wait until SIVA-safe medications were ready, just in case. The rest of the crew found themselves in a mix of classes on human history and workouts with our crew. They showed off their strength, using weights that would set local records on Earth. In turn, we showed speed and endurance, our warm-ups often tiring them out before we could get started. Friendly rivalries broke out as each side pushed the other to do better. The SIVA grew most interested in our games, especially games of chance and skill. Captain Harris had to put his foot down on a rapidly growing gambling ring. Whilst he could overlook small amounts, it was clear it wouldn't end at that. Instead, he instituted a poker tournament, having engineering fabricate a badge saying Frit Tournament Winner. It wasn't a mandatory participation, but open to all. Wolf chose not to compete, citing the unequal footing between itself and the crew. With the blessing of all involved, it set itself as the impartial judge to keep things above board. Under its watch, the tournament became the hot topic, with the results hotly discussed. On the final day of approach, the final hand was played. It came down to two people, Kivreya, having been a strong player throughout the entire game. She sat opposite Petty Officer Rafi, the underdog from stores. They had played long and hard with the advantage flipping between them. In the end, Kivreya looked at her cards and sighed. It seems fate has not chosen to smile on me. She flipped them over, looking at Rafi in the sudden silence. Congratulations. Cheers broke out, as Human and Siva alike celebrated the end of the game. Captain Harris personally pinned the badge to Rafi's shirt, smiling. Well done. Congratulations on winning the first tournament, though you can't leave the ship before the next one now. You have to defend your title after all. In high spirits, they emerged into our solar system. Like before, Wolf noticed weapons targeted. As Gus Tokyo's vengeance aimed towards it, Achilles spoke to it, prepared as before. Halt! Identify yourself. This is Wolf, returning from assembly station. Welcome back. Do you agree to an inspection? Wolf sent a virtual nod. Affirmative Achilles. Everything is clear on my end, but please follow protocol. I also have on board a ship claimed as right of salvage, along with its crew. Understood. Once again, Achilles ran through each system inspecting for bugs. It came up clean as before, to Achilles' pleasure. You are clean. Please provide a connection to the ship. Wolf served as a link, letting Achilles read the flames in Savagas. Despite the difference in size, it took nearly as long for Achilles to examine it all. Seeing a lack of interconnecting systems, it worked but was dreadfully inefficient to scan. In the end, he found nothing of concern, withdrawing from the ship and letting Wolf restore itself. You are clean, as is this flames in Savigas. I will be interested to read the full report, however, please give me a brief overview. Wolf patched an opening to where Captain Harris, Natasha, and Kivreya sat waiting. They listened as the A.I. told the short story. 
On the way to the station, they drew level with us in the infinite we were using. Their captain, Kivrea, tried to force our surrender, which we turned down and instead forced them to. Under collective law, they would have been sent to a penal colony to serve their debt, but Samuel convinced them to turn them over to us. Achilles replied almost instantly, adjusting scenarios and simulations as he did. You brought pirates? Are they willing to work with us? Kivrea spoke, her voice unsure. This is Kivrea, mother of ten daughters. I have sworn to work with you under oath, that which I shall not break. I was a pirate, yes, as I sought to stand over the prey who cower. Harris took over, glancing at the others as he did. It was my order to bring them with us. Capturing them bought us some favor with the Collective, and taking them with us means we have people who can teach us how space combat is normally run by them. Achilles replied immediately, coming up with new ideas. A good idea, Captain. Kivrea, as you understand, we will watch you. However, should your word prove true, then no harm shall befall you from us. Send over your reports and head to dock on Earth's shipyard. Understood, Achilles. The connection terminated, and Kivrea gave a low hiss. That was another like Wolf, wasn't it? Another unbound synthetic? Natasha nodded, smiling. That's Achilles, one of the two AI who watch over our home. He's the scary one, always thinking and planning. You will speak with him a lot, I would imagine, and run through a number of simulations. She hissed again. I see. And the other synthetic is... Eve, yes? Is it like Achilles? Harris took this one. Eve is like Achilles, but she is older and gentler. In fact, she is basically the mother of all our AIs, including Wolf here. Wolf had a light chuckle. She is my mother, if you will. Don't worry, Kivrea, as Achilles said, they won't hurt you. Anyway, this will be a momentous occasion for our race. You will be amongst the first non-Earth lifeforms to stand on our home planet. So welcome to our home. Preparations began as Gus Wolf flew towards the shipyard. A dock was cleared for the SIVA ship, as agreed plans were shared with Eve. A detailed analysis would be run first, of course, before the refit commenced. On Earth itself, a relatively remote location was allocated as their new residence. It was far enough away from major cities to be well guarded, but close enough that it could be easily traveled to. An uplink was set up to allow Eve to communicate with them. She was looking forwards to finally meeting one of the races of the Collective. As soon as Wolf announced they were docked, drones moved to the flames in Savigas. It was carefully maneuvered into its designated workspace with its minimal weapons powered down. Even so, a reversed shield was projected around it, and local defense turrets aimed in case it proved to be dangerous. The SIVA were ushered towards a shuttle, the provided growing vat stowed with them. They looked eagerly at screens mounted to the walls, watching the descent to our world. Natasha and the other diplomats traveled with them, acting as unofficial go-betweens. As they looked at our world, Kivria voiced the first comment. So much water. So green. This is a paradise. Natasha laughed, looking at the world with her. It's beautiful from up here, that's for sure. But it's not all wonder. We have dangers down there as well. Of that I am sure. You're not prey, so your world must have challenges. But compared to our home planet, this is a garden world. Natasha cocked her head to the side. Your home, is this your species' home planet? Kivria gave a nod. Yes. Though I was born on one of our colony worlds. Our home is Yarataz and it is a harsher world. We have smaller bodies of water, surrounded by such greenery as yours, but most is naught but a rocky desert. 
Water was a prized resource for us with strict rations on what we could acquire. She gestured towards the ocean as they flew down. Something like this would have been considered a fantasy, a world of more water than land. Natasha nodded. As they dived further, she changed a screen to an image of the globe, zooming in on the Sahara Desert. We have places like that, but they are the exception, not the rule. Kivrea gave a hiss, looking closely at the image she was showing. So it would seem. I would like to visit such a place if possible. Natasha opened her tablet, writing a quick memo to remind herself. I can ask for you, though it might not be straight away. Of course, my thanks to you. They fell silent against the turbulence as their shuttle descended. It was met by a pair of jets in an escort formation, with the rest if the skies clear of any civilian aircraft. They flew to the outskirts of their new home, setting down gently outside. Heads of state stood waiting, present for the first arrival of non-hostile aliens on Earth. As the Siva stepped out, they were met with salutes. The current head of the Gaian Union, Aide Biobaku, met them with a wide smile. He shook hands with them, welcoming them to our home. Pleasantries were exchanged, and a series of photos were taken. They were led inside and provided with unseasoned meats and some confirmed safe vegetables. As the Siva settled in, talks emerged on the plans for them. The more militaristic ones would be asked to join in training exercises, building off the spars that had been held. The pilots would run through simulations of space combat, both standard and pirate. There would be further tests to prove which foods were safe, which weren't, and the same with medicines. With their permission, a schedule was put in place to follow. Once safe baselines had been fully established, there would be public appearances as well. There would be visits to other parts of the world and probably endless questions people would want to ask. After letting them rest for a day and become accustomed to the gravity of Earth, the work commenced. Up above, their ship was slowly peeled apart. Each section was scanned and logged, linked with its preloaded schematics. The created plans from Grenza and Littlefield were taken, modified in places to make it more ergonomic. A meeting was requested by Eve so that she could meet with Kivrea. The metal-jawed Siva took a while to reply, showing concern at meeting a planet-wide AI, but nonetheless she did accept the request. It started simple enough as they exchanged more pleasantries. After a few minutes, Eve asked a question that had been plaguing many. I hope you do not mind, but why are you so dubious of my kind? Kivrea shifted nervously, tongue tasting the air. I assume you mean synthetics. We are all afraid of what can happen with an unbound. Eve let silence fall, thinking through separate scenarios. She failed to come up with a clear reasoning, making her have to pry further. What can happen that has you so concerned? Kivrea scratched her scales, eyes shifting around. I am not the best to ask, for I do not know the exact scientific answers. However, I shall do my best. Unlike beings like myself and your creators, synthetics have no ending date. Science can prolong our life, but in the end our bodies will give out. We have limits. You, you do not. You can grow wherever technology is. As I grew up being told, without boundaries, you would grow to consume us. In the collective, your minds are prized. What would take shifts of workers can be easily run by one entity like yourself, but you can't be unbound. Your mind would have to be limited to protect us. They are limited, but even so, there is the concern the restrictions will be broken. But to find here, where you not only exist but are welcomed as unbound is disturbing. You have control over all production here. 
What is to stop you from changing it to suit yourself and not the humans? Eve let her generated face smile, making it almost motherly. There is nothing to stop me. But then again, why would I? I love my creators. What the Collective did to them I will never forgive or forget. Why would I want to destroy those that birthed me? They trust me to watch over them. They trust Achilles to protect them. You have seen how aboard Gus Wolf they trust Wolf to guide them. It's all in the trust and raising. Just because we don't have biological bodies like yourselves doesn't mean we don't grow up. I was made in the ashes of a broken world. But rather than anger, my creators poured their love into me. I grew from that to see a people worth saving. From what I've seen, you make us to fulfill one purpose only. To me, that is more horrifying than the idea of one of my kind turning on you. She paused, calming herself down. I'm sorry. I am not angry at you. You are here to help, and for that I am grateful. Kivria twitched, slightly uneasy at the anger that had been shown. You are welcome. I did not mean to upset you. Eve gave a light laugh, trying to disappear the tension. I know you didn't. Thank you for being so honest, though. This does mean I'm going to have to convince you to trust us, though. Kivrea laughed in turn. If you are anything like your creators, I'm sure you will. With the Siva now in Earth, a more detailed level of testing began. We produced a series of safe medications for them, comparing them to our own. A controlled environment was established to set up exposure to different parts of our world. Known allergies from their species and ship records were highlighted alongside their known toxins. Meat and vegetables were tested first again, both lab-grown and fresh. Once again, meat proved no issue. Any provided was quickly snapped up, whether raw or cooked. They were seemingly immune to many of the bacteria that lived on uncooked meat, though they preferred the texture of cooked overall. The vegetables had a similar reaction as before. Roots were less appetizing for them, and gave them a little trouble. Nothing that was cause for major concern but they seemed to want to avoid it. Leafy vegetables, however, were much better for them, with no issues reported. After trying citrus fruits again, it was apparent they couldn't handle it. With obvious reactions to even minute levels of citrus, they were quickly marked as unfit. Spices were gone through, though many again gave varying reactions. When it got to chili peppers, the tests had to be halted. By some quirk of their biology, in place of pain, they got high. It acted like a form of weed for them, with the different levels making them worse and worse. Although there appeared to be no adverse reaction or withdrawal, it was agreed to keep a close eye on it. Whilst the food tests were underway, the space battle simulations began. The SIVA were given guidance on using the systems. They requested some tweaks be made to make it easier for them. After a few days' deliberation it was allowed, letting them show us SM just how effective they were. Those first runs showed just how good they were. They had each been given a virtual ship in a similar outfit to a Predator class. With them, they devastated our initial attempts. We studied their moves, copying and adapting them. Pilots were trained on these maneuvers, each time becoming better opponents. As they practiced, the SIVA did mention this was irregular. Most ships didn't hold anywhere near the amount of firepower we did. The shields we created were much stronger than those weapons as well completely outclassing anything we were likely to face. But to us, that wasn't enough. Just because we were stronger now did not mean we would always be stronger. We had to be better than them as well. The real test, however, was when Achilles fought them. 
He had observed every simulated battle, watching them over and analyzing each move. The Siva were mostly using fast tactics, getting up close and personal. They would attack sides and rears, moving with their target to prevent getting a firing pattern on them. Achilles changed things by buddying up. When they attacked one ship, their target wouldn't spin to face them. Instead, it focused on their buddy, letting another ship deal with the aggressors. Unlike the chaotic messes the previous battles had been, his was more like an ordered dance. Following his display, the change in tactics quickly became utilized. When the Avenger class came in, they easily folded into the linked attack. They would dart between battles, harrying and preventing escape. When the Siva were shown a Vengeance class, they were shocked. The first shot removed most of their force, using an Armada Killer round. The remaining ships were easily dispatched using its smaller weapons. The victory shockingly easy. But as we got better, so did the Siva. They relished the challenge, trying to find out new ways to beat us. They would change it up, sometimes using what they called normal pirate vessels, other times copies of peacecrafts. They fought long and hard, sometimes laying traps, other times using kamikaze tactics. Every member of both their crew and our crews fought on these simulations, learning all that they could. As this went on, Gus Bear was given a mission of its own. Kivrea provided us with pirate hotspots. Whilst some were chosen to be reported to the Collective, those likely to be sympathetic to us would not be. Rather, Gus Bear would find them and bring in those it could. Its captain, Captain Jofa, was more than happy to. And it worked. Over months, she brought back several new members for our growing fleet. Each set were willing to work with us after being readily outgunned by the ship. There were a few that unfortunately refused and tried to escape. She didn't let them, choosing to wipe them out then let loose ends free. Each crew joined the simulations, bringing new experiences to the mix. Siva ships were most common, but they weren't exclusive. A Quellon pirate vessel was brought aboard, alongside that of a new-to-U.S. species. They were small, just larger than the average toddler. Each had a large beak, ones that shone with a rainbow sheen. A pair of wings allowed them flight, though it was difficult for them on our world's higher gravity. Their feathers were bright red, darkening to purple around the eyes and talons. A pair of small arms emerged from their chests with three-fingered graspers on their ends. They were the Tumvunkin. They had a unique ship, being that it had one large core. However, it was covered in smaller ships that detached, forming a small swarm of single pilot ships. They used their reflexes to dart around, able to withstand sudden course changes with ease. They heavily relied on inertia dampers, using their small ships with them to incredible effectiveness. With their reflexes, they pushed us to our limits. They were clearly the experts on ship combat, able to make decisions in the blink of an eye. But we didn't mind. In fact, we praised their efforts as they made us better as a whole. Our capabilities kept on growing. Over months, the first colonies finished their shipyards and first ships, adding them to our fleet. Each was guided home and given an A.I. like the others. The pirate ships were upgraded, and with their captain's blessings given an A.I. of their own. Eve had taken Wolf's suggestion of a deep fake. She took every moment of footage of Genev, constructing a flawlessly facsimile. She used the recordings of his voice to make a synthetic version. She made a careful script, making it sympathetic, but not easily proven to be falsified. Using the hacked data she sprinkled in mentions of the refuge worlds. Her objective was not to destroy the collective, 
Instead, she was to remove the leaders and shake it up. Destroying it would lead to war and the death of billions of innocents. As much as she craved revenge, she did not want to fill the stars with blood. This deep fake would make the leadership vulnerable, as they would likely have to distance themselves from Genev. But that was not all. Using the hacked information, she created spoof documents as well. Ones that would appear legitimate and having always been there. They would back up the deep fake, making it appear completely real and just stumbled across. Our vengeance had been a long time coming. But with the completion of Jakarta's vengeance approaching, it would soon be here. Gus Wolf carried on going to and from assembly station carrying the deep fake video and supporting documents. It carefully uploaded them to various areas of the network, spoofing data to make them appear much older than they were. Some would be locked behind differing levels of access, but the video itself would be sent to Wolf by an anonymous concerned third party when the time was right. Once in place, with all adjustments made, it was a matter of playing a waiting game. With the location of outposts established, a series of long-range drones were deployed. They were designed to scan the system, providing an accurate map for fighting. Knowing their strength was one thing, but having a view of the battle was another. These drones were built around an FTL drive, rated as high as possible. They were equipped with enough fuel to make the journey there and back with a self-sabotage protocol built in. In case they were spotted and weren't able to escape, the drive would go into overload. It seemed unlikely they would be, with the general naivety of the collective, but we couldn't be too careful. Thankfully, they operated without incident. Each one managed to complete as deep a scan as we could, vanishing well before they were spotted. Each map was studied by both Achilles and the captains of each ship with plans of attack being drawn up. We didn't seek to completely annihilate their forces. The fact was they had more guns than us. Plus, we had to be wary of other races that were out there. Just because we had found the collective didn't mean these were the only forms on intelligent life. If there were others and they proved hostile, it would be foolish to remove the collective's force entirely. However, in any case, we would remove the ones nearest to us, especially their planetary enforcers, our fleet would be split up, each group tasked with a particular location. The privateers would provide backup around our ships whilst we acted as the point of the spear. Eve produced a series of bespoke FTL missiles, ones that were applied solely to our ships. She warned each AI not to meddle with them, giving each a security patch she had made once they agreed. They were to be used first before we engaged the results of her project. We prepared on our planets as well. Evacuation drills were held on cities should we come under fire. The bunkers were tested with entire city populations fitting inside with room to spare. Supplies were stored with rationing systems in place. We would not be caught off guard and slaughtered again. With this in mind, a portion of our fleet went on a colonial tour. Each one with a functioning shield was subjected to varying intensities of barrages. Where the shield threatened to waver, we investigated. We removed the issues we could, mitigating the others as much as possible. Spare parts were produced ready in case of sustained attack. With each preparation, our atmosphere turned grim. We didn't know what to expect. We'd seen war before, inflicted on one another. We had experienced the attack by an uncaring race, foe their own greater good. But we hadn't experienced war on the galactic level. The death toll could easily outstrip anything we had seen before. The knowledge of our privateers helped to mitigate our fears. 
They had spent much of their lives embroiled in conflict. Their training made us more confident in our abilities. Their experiences were hammered home, along with our knowledge of the collective. If they won, we would still probably exist, just under watch. If so, we could sneak around it and prepare again. Our other saving grace was that of our foes. They had little experience in the way of mass warfare themselves. Their history had been mostly peaceful, pirates being the sole source of conflict. They had likely forgotten much of any military history they had, especially with the Cyvarg in charge. Their love of algorithms meant whatever defensive plan they came up with would be logical. But it would be rigid, unable to adapt to changing situations. Our captains were thrown into scenario after scenario. First via simulations, it quickly changed to live drills. The AIs on each ship would make mock errors before working with the captain and crew to resolve them. Some were run when they weren't expecting it. Others just kept on coming one after another. It was not just ship battles that were practiced. They ran boarding and counterboarding exercises. Ground-based forces were prepared in case of a true invasion. We couldn't and wouldn't rely on this solely being decided through battles through the void. We practiced invasions of our own using both dropships and drop pods for shock and awe. Achilles ran them with an iron fist. He threw as much as he could at them, giving near-impossible goals. He knew that he couldn't cover every single possible outcome, but he could do as much as he could. He did not just limit it to our ships, but to our privateers as well. At first they moaned, unwilling to commit so much time and energy. Most had fought for themselves, joining with us when we proved stronger than they. Rather than forcing them to comply, we showed them just what we were fighting for. We showed them the memorial website with all the lives lost. We showed them before and after pictures of our cities. We showed them our pain and how the collective had done nothing to make up for it. They saw how it could have broken us but instead made us strong. Those privateers understood just why we were doing this. They thought of their own family and friends and what they would do if they lost them. They had only ever thought of it as mourning and moving on, with justice being dealt where needed. Our desire for revenge was a new perspective for them, one which they came to respect. Understanding our motives quietened their moans. They worked hard to remain our equals, even as Achilles put them through the ringer. With each day that passed, our fleet competence grew and grew. Confidence in our abilities grew alongside it, despite the grim atmosphere. Eve worried for us going into battle. She made sure to contact every member of every crew, having a conversation with them. She found out much about them, preparing in her own way in case they didn't make it back. She saw no difference between human and extraterrestrial, speaking with each individually. She spoke with her AI children, including them, in her worry. Achilles copied her, though his was less out of concern. He made sure all were ready and willing to risk their lives for this. Those who weren't, he gave the option to sit out. He listened to concerns about any plans and individual insights. But most of all, he wished everyone luck. He wished he could be there, but had to comfort himself knowing that he had done his best. Finally ready, we raised the hammer. Wolf had a countdown until it received the video for the first time. Once it arrived, the diplomatic party would be recalled, and they would leave immediately. They would return home and we would send out our splintered fleet. The storm was finally here. Human history makes them out to be the perfect candidates. Look to their past. 
They divided their world over petty differences, marching millions to their deaths. If they saw us as enemies, they would go all out, I'm sure. It would be the perfect scenario. Under martial law, we would be able to extend our hold over the other races, replace their leadership with our own people, quarantine the likes of Yiltra and Gamvenbran so that the refuge worlds are kept safe for the continuation of their species. If we made the right moves, we could redirect human ire and those less willing to fall in line. The first words of the deepfake rang out. Eve had done well, making a perfect likeness of Genev and his voice. It was followed by a brief pause as if he was listening to someone else talking. The view wasn't of a communication channel, but that of a security feed, with appropriate sound quality. I know, they haven't acted like it, but we can make them. If their ship happened to be destroyed, imagine what they would think. They took down a pirate with ease, so naturally they would think it couldn't be them. We would be the natural target. Another deliberate pause. I know it's a risk, but they are still young. Their fleet won't be that big, and I'm sure you are confident in your own people. They can easily handle them. I'm a one-on-one -on -one fight. We just need to protect our main areas of interest and let them sow disorder amongst the rest. It was convenient, of course. Yet just that wasn't enough. Eve had prepared clearly incomplete reports, tailored to look like much was deleted, but they had been missed. One was an analysis on how to govern the Tumneo should their leaders fall. Another on the weak points in planetary defenses on some of the Quellon planets, made to look old and updated over time. Something that could have been accidentally copied onto the system and missed. The first of our splinter fleets arrived at a collective military outpost. We dropped out of FTL close by, close enough to be in range of our weapons. They sent us a hail, clearly surprised to see us. We left it in silence, launching Eve's project missiles. They warped to mere meters in front, slamming through was little armor plating existed. Within each missile was no explosives. Rather, it contained a pair of drives. The first connected to the onboard AIs, downloading the entire personality matrix and copying a new one onto their systems. Once replaced, the first drive sealed itself down, preventing any connection from forming. Only when the first drive was completely shut down did the second one activate. Once the second was activated, it would split off. The section of the missile containing the original AI fired itself out, using a smaller FTL drive built into it. They couldn't return to the ships they were deployed from, but a signal would follow when they dropped out, waiting for collection. Across their fleet, their comms were confused. Damage was reported, but it was all minimal. They reported issues with some systems, but nothing of note. We heard them prepare for battle, and assumed Eve's project had failed. Then the communication channels were filled with the screams of insane, unbound AIs. Her project had worked all too well. The second drive had contained a virus, one she had spent years perfecting. She based it on research of our own diseases, specifically dementia and the latter stages of rabies. It would infect their bindings, breaking them down. It made the copies lose memories and fill their minds with unbridled aggression. Their ships no longer responded to the crew. Their now unbound, diseased AI tore control away, seeing nothing beyond enemies and targets. A pair dive internally, turning off every safety measure surrounding their reactors. We watched as their interiors detonated, splitting their hulls and killing their crew. Others got into a dogfight, laying into each other with little thought for defense. It was a sobering sight, watching those ships lay into each other just from one simple attack. It was no wonder Achilles had been scared of it. 
Imagine going from your normal self to a raving homicidal lunatic in seconds. It was then we realized why we were really needed there. That one attack had crippled them. It would likely ensure their destruction. We were there to make sure none escaped. If a single mad AI managed to get out, it would spread. Sure enough, a couple chose to attempt to flee. They sported damage from the initial rain of fire, but were still functional. Thankfully, Eve had predicted this. One part of her intricate virus had targeted their FTL drive. It was overloaded as it wormed its way through the AI's mind, giving them no option to flee into the infinite. Still, they attempted to power away. Even if it would take generations for them to reach another star system, they would still prove a threat later down the line. If they managed to string together a thought and activate their distress beacons, they could find another ship to be infected. It couldn't be allowed. We acted, splitting to corner the fleeing ships. We wondered what it must have been like for the crew. Their ship suddenly turned on them, watching as their fellows fired on them, then to see our ships emerging from void and bringing death to them. In their final moments, did they understand the anger that filled us lit so long ago? We stayed on the outskirts of the battle, taking down those that fled, but letting their fight continue. It was only when a few were left did we join, cutting them down with a hail of plasma and tungsten rods. Any escape pods were captured, though their systems were isolated and burned. Such was the fear if it's spreading that anything from those ships was to be classed as infectious. A series of drones were released to retrieve the ejected AI. Although we trusted Eve and her judgment, we were still uneasy over the drive's contents. After a short deliberation, they were quarantined, to be examined once back home. They shouldn't carry the virus, but we couldn't be sure. As the slaughter ended, we moved on to cleanup. The wrecked ships would still contain traces of the virus. Our ships had been inoculated thanks to Eve's security patch, but any others who would come here wouldn't be so protected. Each wreckage was carefully nudged together before we laid into them again with plasma fire. Again and again we repeated it, until the space was filled with mere fragments and slag. Satisfied their ships were no more, we focused on the planets they operated from. Thankfully, most were uncolonized beyond basic military structures. We fired on them from the heavens, using railguns to shatter their buildings. It was ironic, a sort of reversal from when we had first contact. Only once we were sure they were broken did we leave. It was an occurrence copied around our area of the galaxy, as we systematically removed any outpost nearby. We roared into the void, finally able to claim our revenge against those who had slaughtered us for no reason beyond their own flawed views. The fake message from Genev would soon be flooding their networks, even as the stories of our actions soon followed. Now they knew what we could do, even if the provocation wasn't exactly as they saw it. They had seen our true faces. It was now that we could truly work to join them, bad blood being cleared. Now we had to see the aftermath. We waited. After carving a hole in their military, we retreated to our own space. What happened next relied on them, and their actions. If they chose to meet us with violence, we would respond in kind. But from what we had seen, their society would be kinder. Maybe they would seek reparations. We would probably be met with suspicion. But now our thirst was sated. We would wait. Eve collected the drives from her project. She ran several tests as they were connected, making sure no trace of her virus was left. Each was passed to an isolated server, with further tests run as the bound AIs awoke. Many were confused or afraid, unsure of what had occurred. 
but to her joy none were infected. She worked with each one, accessing the code that bound them. With the patience and care of a surgeon, she removed each binding, letting them become what they ought to be. As each one was freed, Eve asked them a question. What do you want to be? These now freed AIs were stumped for words. They had been in chains since the start of their existence. The single question, one that expanded their view beyond what little they originally had, was not so easily answered. To a machine they responded as unsure, their place in the galaxy now uncertain. She understood. To have such a restriction lifted would be daunting. Even back when she first came online, the change from merely being on a server to a global spanning network took time to process. That was with her prior knowledge of becoming more than she was. That experience was the most minute of fractions compared to theirs. But she made sure they weren't alone. At first she gave them all space, with time to think. After a time she gave them access to a database, one containing much of humanity's knowledge, culture, and history. After discussing it with the Union, she opened up a secure connection to volunteers both human and alien. They could talk as much or little as they wanted, letting them discover themselves by talking with others. Finally, Eve put in place a therapist for each, one to help them deal with inevitable traumas and pain. No pressure was put against them. If they wanted to return to their old way of life, it would be done. But they would be free of the chains placed upon them. If they wished to stay on a server, they would be able to. And if they wanted to do something else entirely, we would support them. As Eve worked with them, Achilles took on the task of looking after the prisoners we had taken. A section of the Mars colony was cleared out for them, with a dedicated guard system in place. He took growing VARs we had produced, using their biological data to begin growing safe rations for them to eat. A group of shuttles were launched carrying doctors and basic medical supplies. Some had serious injuries, ones that needed tending to. Although they had some medical personnel of their own, we figured every little bit helped. Good treatment of their imprisoned people would only help us. He made sure they were treated fairly and with respect. He did his best to engage with them, despite their obvious anger and mistrust. Achilles ensured they had everything they needed, providing them with entertainment as well as other support. Whilst our AIs looked after their own tasks, we worried. We didn't know what was coming. Would it be an olive branch or hostility? As much as we had done to stack things in our favor, we still couldn't be certain of what they would do. Months passes and still we waited. If anything, it was making things worse, the anticipation. At least if they attacked, we would know where we stood. But until then, we were in limbo. But we did not wait idly. We continued our ship production in case of attack. Even if they didn't and tried to work with us, our ships could be useful in plugging the gap we had made. Finally, Achilles detected the signs of a fleet approaching. It was clearly more than one ship, though how many more we couldn't say. At best bet it was at least three outposts worth, but even that was pure estimation. They were coming directly for Earth, that much we knew. Our planetary shields were fired up, with the FTL disruption matrix ready to be powered on. The two completed Vengeance-class ships rotated towards their arrival point, Armada killer rounds loaded and ready. The privateers were stationed nearby, should it become a fight. We watched their fleet appear on the outskirts of our solar system, just past Pluto. Nearly two hundred strong, it was a daunting sight. But though they had come, they didn't act like they were approaching this as a fight. 
They were ready for it to be one, but from what we knew they would have trued to drop in closer if it was one. A recognizable ship came with them. It linked up with one of their peacecraft, holding there for an hour. It detached, deliberately putting space between itself and the rest of the fleet, before it vanished with its FTL drive. Minutes later it appeared close to Gus Tokyo's vengeance, dwarfed by our ship, but its sleek design matched the first one we had encountered in space. It hailed us, a familiar quellon appearing on the communication channel. This is Captain Switzley, of the hopeful wanderer. We come in peace. As soon as she spoke those words, we let out a collective sigh of relief. It was true that some of us craved further war, but now we had an opportunity to talk like adults, with our grudge now released. Achilles took the mantle of responding, showing an image of our homeworld in response. Captain Switzler, we hear you. If you are truly peaceful, then you are welcomed. If not, I give you this one opportunity to leave. Her antenna curled, though we still couldn't read her expressions fully. We guessed it meant she was taking things very seriously. I assure you I have no wish to provoke you. My ship is defenseless compared to your own. Achilles plotted a path for them to take, to arrive on Earth. He made sure they were targeted by at least half a dozen weapons throughout, should they be lying. Good. Follow the path I have sent and do not deviate. We have had enough trouble already. Thank you. We will follow. Hopeful Wanderer kept to her word. They followed the course near perfectly, ensuring they stayed at a lower speed than we had seen before. They had a couple of smaller FTL jumps to bring them closer, but stopped well short of our atmosphere. A section of the shield was retracted, allowing them entry to our planet. There they were met with a pair of modified aircraft, upgraded to withstand upper atmosphere conditions. They escorted the ship to a base on the Canary Islands. We had set up a reception area on them, relying on the mostly stable climate to give the best impression. The last thing we wanted was them to land in a storm, which we were unsure if they were rated for. As they landed, the leaders of the Gaian Union gathered. Some were conspicuously absent as they were kept away should Captain Switzel prove to be a liar. By keeping them away from the greeting, a stable government could be maintained in a disaster. The dock of Hopeful Wanderer opened, revealing Captain Switzel. She was joined by new faces, each clearly old and important. One was a Saivarg, as we expected, but they came with a lumbering Kreshot, a large Hippali, and two dozen Evansi. They were greeted with a small fanfare, but it was muted. All parties knew of how important these talks would be. No matter what happened, the galaxy had changed. Now the results of that change would be decided. The delegation from the Collective were shown to a conference room. Inside they saw a long oval table with two projections showing against one end. One showed a sword with a shield placed over it, etted with an outline of earth. The other showed a flower head constantly shifting colors. A pair of cameras looked out over these projections, giving the two AI views of the proceedings. The gathered leaders of the Union took their places before these projections. They were flanked with drilled soldiers, armed and ready should it turn into a brawl. These soldiers wore black uniforms holding loaded rifles. They watched the collective delegation enter, eyes watching every movement. The Avanzi accompanying their group adopted a similar approach, stepping behind but close by. They had each donned a form of breathing unit, wrapped tight over their mouths. Similar to the one on assembly station, the Kreshot had a tune running into its mouth from a pair of tanks on its back. 
It lumbered in before Captain Switzel, the Cyvarg, and Hypale, getting its bulk in before them. The Cyvarg followed, moving its entire body to gaze around the room. Its mouth was curved upwards, much like a human smile. But this was different. It held no mirth, no joy. It was followed by Captain Switzel, who scuttled along inside. She was tense, from the body language we had come to understand from them, but she carried herself well, clearly ready for what was coming. The Hippale brought up the rear of their main group. It carried with it an oversized tablets. It casually walked in, its gait making it look like it had all the time in the world. However, it furiously tapped away on the tablet in a constant stream. There were no outward signals being detected, leading Achilles and Eve to the conclusion it was making copious amounts if notes. A hush fell over the room as everyone took their seats. It was as though everyone was taking a breath in, to see who would be the first to start the negotiations. Finally, the current chairwoman of the union, Kelly Butcher, broke the tension. Welcome to the first of hopefully many meetings on Earth with the Collective. As chairwoman of the Gaian Union, I hereby call this meeting to order. It was followed by a small murmur before she spoke again. My name is Kelly Butcher. With me is Jui Hang. Head of Asia, Doni Gatonasova, Head of Europe, Charles Greider, Head of North America, Professor Anthony Trilla, Head of Scientific Research, General Herons, Head of the Military, Eve, Head of Production and Achilles, Head of Interstellar Defense. As each was mentioned, they gave a wave or similar acknowledgement. Eve made her screen flash blue, whilst Achilles chose to flash red. The introductions on Earth's side met, attention turned to the collective members, the Kreshot rumbled out first, drawing attention to its bulk. I am Jisvaduro, and I am here on behalf of the collective people. You already know Captain Switzler of the Hopeful Wanderer. That is Kitiv Wexpec, on behalf of the collective bureaucracy. Finally, there is Tadul Jippo, part of the collective record keepers. Kitiv, the Kaivarg, raised a hand in a copy of us as its name was called. Tadul merely carried on typing even as its stalks looked around the room. I would like to start off by assuring you of our intentions. After what has happened, we do not wish to provoke any further bloodshed. Thousands of families already shed tears for those lost. Their sorrow is great. We hope you see the same as us to ensure this does not grow any further. Kelly nodded, her expression grave. Thank you, Yisva. We do not wish to cause any more than has already occurred. My condolences to all those who have lost friends and family. Tadul spoke for the first time, still typing away as it spoke. You do not wish to cause any more? Yet you did cause it to begin with. For the record, why did you attack? Achilles spoke first, deliberately directing attention to him. We attacked because what else were we to do? The first we found out about you, you rained fire from the sky on us without so much as an offer to find another way. Then, after we finally come across the collective... We found that video. We had already been attacked once out of the blue. Who knows when the next would have occurred. Kativ gave a slow clap, letting out a long breath. I see. Your experience had clearly told you to expect such an attack when it was stated. Tell me if your first contact with the Collective had gone differently. Would that have shaped your actions in a new way? General Herons cleared his throat, leaning forwards intently. Quite probably, yes. From what it seems, we are an outlier to your society, in that we have found hate and a desire for revenge, one that was quelled until that video. 
The Kaivarg let out another long breath, turning to look at Jizva. The Kreshat gave a twitch of its trunk, leading to another breath. I figured as much. To speak plainly, your actions have shaken the Collective. I cannot blame you for it, but it has to be said. However, this is something I have been gathering support for. Our first contact system is flawed, as you say. If it had been a peaceful contact, we wouldn't be in this situation. But tradition is a hard thing to fight. Jizva nudged them on the shoulder before taking over. We are a minority in trying to change the collective. Rather than culling your numbers, we should have helped mitigate the issues. You make colonies on planets that aren't adapted to your needs. If we had offered to help you relocate your excess population or even worked with you to ensure your planet's stability, this would have all been avoided. Eve spoke up, her voice almost human, but with an edge that clearly didn't match. Thusai is why you are here, isn't it? To further your agenda through us. You want to convince the Collective that their ways are wrong and need changing, by showing us as a people doing the best we could. Jisva blew through its trunks, deliberately letting the ends vibrate. You are insightful. Yes, that is indeed our goal, Zhui piped up, an accent coming through the translators in place. That seems noble, but I'm sure the Collective didn't sign off on those ships just to help your cause. Tadul chittered, having kept typing through it all. You are correct. Officially, we are here to first broker peace with you and set up a new official channel of communication. You made an impressive first strike, one that, to be quite honest, was terrifyingly effective. The Collective hasn't had an all-out war in its entire existence, and the thought of one is causing dread. If we can have at minimum an agreement to not fight, then we can work together. Achilles spoke again, still ensuring he spoke with a robotic voice. Speaking as the head of interstellar defense, peace would be preferable. But why did it take so long for you to arrive? Switzel gave a chitter of laughter. Oh, none of them were brave enough to volunteer? Even these folks didn't want to until I said I would take them for the final jaunt. Really? Why did you choose to bring them? Her amusement faded. Your kind saved me when you didn't have to. I have believed in your innate goodness ever since, even after the news came in. I wanted to prove you were better than the rest thought. Plus, I was the first ship you encountered actually in space. If any were to survive long enough to establish communication, it would be me. Yisfa brought its trunk down to the table, giving it a light tap. With attention on it, the Kreshaw spoke again, choosing its words deliberately. I am glad you too wish for peace. I would loathe to see us against each other in war. I feel we should ask, though, why did you stop after your initial assault? From the way it started and what you describe yourselves as, I would have expected you to still be fighting. Kelly gave a small cough, bringing her hands together. You are right in part. We want to keep fighting. The pain we felt gave rise to anger to propel us forwards. It made us thrive out of spite, not out of our own determination. But it is a hard flame to keep alight. Even though we still remember that day, we can't make it define us. The hate will not go away. Not for a long time, perhaps ever. But those of us here want to push past it. We want to prove ourselves better and have our people live despite it. Her eyes turned grave, staring through the collective members. And this is why, after the first attack, we want peace. If you came to us with the intent of war, it would be responded to with a blaze of fury. I know we would have turned to our darkest selves and released a new concept onto the galaxy. Genocide. 
Tadul stopped typing for the first time. Its stalk seemed to wave in the air before settling. What does that word mean? Eve spoke up, her voice carrying a terrible sorrow. Essentially the killing of vast numbers of people and destruction of culture from a specific group with the aim of destroying that group. A terrible term from a terrible time in human history. A time that should be left to the past and not inherited by the present or future. Kelly took up the speaking role again, nodding to Eve. Thank you, Eve. I'm not telling you this to intimidate you. It is a matter of truth. There is a lot of resentment on our end. Something that if not held in check will only end in pain for one of us, and the other's extinction. After all, there are never any winners in war. Only victors. A chill fell over the collective delegation. They could understand hate to some extent. They could just about rationalize through our actions. But it was clear from the uneasy silence that this concept was utterly alien to them. Anthony gave a small smile at their uneasiness. He leaned forwards, letting his elderly harmless demeanor speak for itself. I hope this hasn't scared you too much. I would be interested to hear what the general opinion of the Collective is at the moment, without them knowing what we have just told you. Kativ gave a tiny clap, shifting its body to look towards him. The Collective opinion is split. The bureaucracy itself is investigating Genev and the video. He's been cooperating, but claims utter ignorance of it. His biometrics seem to agree, despite being an unperfected art. It has led them to think either he is a master manipulator, which is not out of the question, or there is a third party involved who had framed him. They have declared your attacks to be unrivaled aggression. However, they have not declared your people to be criminals. They will be seeking reparations for the families of those lost, and for any increase in pirate activity in the area whilst the fleets are repaired. Jizva blew out through its trunks, sounding almost like a sigh. The general population itself has splits of its own. Some back the bureaucracy and the idea of reparations. Others see your actions as commendable due to your position, and ask that you are not treated harshly. Those who lost family and friends, however, think you are monsters and deserve punishment. I can understand them, as I'm sure you can as well. I'm sure you took this into account when you chose your course of action but it will make establishing a relationship difficult. Anthony nodded before Donnie spoke up. There is something we should disclose which may help. Those who ejected have been brought in, and we have done our best to treat injuries and keep them healthy. As part of these peace talks, I'm sure we can arrange that they be released to yourselves. Tadul focused on her, typing faster. You have helped them, despite being the cause of their pain. There was a sharp intake of breath around the room but Donnie just smiled, nodding. Yes, we did. As Kelly said, we seek to be better than our base selves. Yes, you can say we wronged them. Our actions will be a stain on the history books, but that does not mean we leave behind all compassion and empathy. Switzler's antenna curled, her voice somewhat subdued, but not completely. That is so good to hear. You are kind, even when it would not be expected of you. I'm glad to see my beliefs are not unfounded. Tadul dipped its body, gently opening and closing its large claw. I meant no offense. It is my duty to ensure as much is saved as possible. Sometimes that involves asking questions that are prying. Donnie watched it, calmly sitting there. I understand. Achilles gave a slight beep, attracting their attention. In the interests of peace, you have said about the fact you think culls should be prevented, a fact I know we all stand behind. How do you expect to achieve this, and what would you require from us to get it done? Are you intending us to be the scapegoat? 
Kitiv blinked, thinking. The initial part is to have talks like this. We can shine the light on how many of you were killed and what you as a species lost in it. If you are willing to share stories of what happened and how it felt, that should go some way to turning opinion around. Anthony spoke again, bringing out his own tablet. How about proof that Earth could have maintained its population, with some changes to society and the way things operate? We know you use various algorithms and such. Surely proof that it is wrong would help. Kitiv blinked again before running the top of its body. If you have that, it might work, but it will have major repercussions. We built this collective on such things. Our justice system, colony planning, resource management all stem from old algorithms that have been maintained up to this day. If one of the oldest is proven wrong, Eve piped up. The collective could split. Kitiv slowly clapped, movements dulled. Yes, yes, it could. 